Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor of DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Brett McCreenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 77. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. This is Joe. This is John. And back by popular demand is none other than the voice actor herself, Stella. Hey! All right. We are covering the news and comic book reviews from September 11th through September 24th. Not too much news, but we do have seven books to cover, and we go everywhere from the high highs of the Batman universe to the low lows, possibly even the gutter of the Batman universe. So we'll get into those after the news. How's everybody been doing? Low and lazy. <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm having a rather good day, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. One thing that's been interesting is there's obviously all these books that we're covering in this episode. Like I said, there's definitely some discussion points that have been running around on the internet. And we'll obviously get to some of those. But the interesting thing is coming to record the comic podcast, it's one of those times where, you know, not only do you have the emails going back and forth between us and talking about things on the forums and texting people back and forth. But the comic podcast is really the place that we all come to essentially, in some senses, vent and also praise books. And I think this one is really going to have probably the most venting and most praising that we might have had on the comic (laughs) podcast in probably at at least the last year, if not longer. So just be prepared. That's all I have to say. It's going to be a bipolar episode. Yes. All right, without further ado, let's get into comic news. The very first thing we have is an interview that was done with Hayden Blackman and J.H. Williams III. This obviously was regarding their work on Batwoman, and this was done with IGN, and was actually performed and posted on September 12th. So I will read for IGN. And Joe will read for Hayden Blackman, and John will read for J.H. Williams III. The series has been on reader radar for quite a while. Since it was pushed back to be included as one of the new 52, have your original plans for the series changed at all? Not really. We already had scripts up through issue 8 or 9 written and approved. Jim was wrapping up art for issue 3 and Amy was finishing up issue 6 by the time the new 52 became official. We've really just kept plugging ahead. There was only one scene in the first arc that we had to alter to reflect the new state of the DCU. I think it's important that we've stuck to our original plan, because each arc is meant to feed into the next. Everything that happens in arc 1 leads directly to the storylines and central conflicts in arc 2, and arc 3 is a direct result of everything in arc 2. Fortunately, we were able to fit in quite nicely due to the fact that so much work had already been done. The entire first arc was written already. We were working scripts for the second, issue 8 or 9, when we got word that this was happening. Art on arc 1 was over half complete by then, too. With the way the story was designed, for it to fold into each arc, we really had to plan ahead a good distance. 
at the time of DC letting everyone know what was happening. We had already set things in motion that will lead to Arc 3, and Amy was already doing work for Arc 2. So I think DC felt it prudent to not scrap all we've done and rolled Batwoman's story into the new world status. We really only had to rewrite dialogue for a couple of scenes and alter art in some spots, very minor things to adjust overall. For example, in issue two, there is a spread showing a pantheon of bat heroes as a backdrop, and this had to change a little bit, and we use an effect that sort of calls out Flashpoint in a vague but effective way, or so I hope. It was simple art tweaks like this that make the difference, along with a major dialogue rewrite on one scene. In terms of supporting cast, what should fans expect? Is Kathy's father still serving as her behind-the-scenes guy? The supporting cast isn't huge, but hopefully it's well-developed. It's a mix of existing relationships and new relationships, but again, every relationship will evolve over time. We've already hinted at several characters who will be appearing, including Maggie Sayer, Betty Kane, Cameron Chase, and Kate's father, Jacob. As revealed in Batwoman issue zero, Kate and her father Jacob are estranged after the events in Elegy. Kate felt betrayed by her father, who seemingly knew that her sister was still alive, but never told her. We felt that reconciling from this type of betrayal would take a long time, if it could happen at all. There's no way she just accepts it immediately and then moves on as if nothing ever happened. But the state of her relationship with Jacob will force her to grow, both as Batwoman, who now has to succeed without Jacob's help, and as Kate, who has to deal with her conflicting feelings for her father. The supporting cast is going to grow, but not too much. We've got a lot of story to tell. We've added some familiar faces and a good variety of personalities to play off as the series rolls on. At this point in Kate's life, after what she has been through, and having been lied to by her father for most of her adult life about Beth having lived, we're not sure if they'll still be able to get past this or not. This is something that will be explored over time and cause some interesting things to take place. It creates very emotional dynamics for Kate's relationships and will pull on her, test her sense of loyalty as other things happen, and worm their way into her life. All right, so that's the end of that interview. A couple things to note. Obviously, Batwoman number one is already out, and we are fully aware that a lot of the characters, even though they say that the supporting cast isn't huge, I don't know what they're comparing it to because just in issue one, there is a lot of characters in the issue, and... In my mind, the supporting cast is bigger in Batwoman than in some of the other Bat books, so I guess they're thinking on a much grander scale when they say the supporting cast isn't that big. But at the same time, going back to their comments about some of the changes that might have happened because of the book being included in the New 52, I am most interested in waiting to see this splash page from issue number two with all of the Bat heroes as a backdrop. That's going to be great. Especially since that could be the first clarification of some of the characters that we haven't actually seen out of the books that have actually been released so far. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that as well. I obviously love Williams's art. It's really beautiful. It's also good that so much of the storyline has been done. We've got quite a few months ahead of us of solid storylines before he may potentially run into delays. The idea of the Flashpoint reference in issue two kind of has me curious because they're doing something with that because of the hooded woman appearing everywhere this month, but I'm just curious to see where that's going to go. All right, so then the next interview we have comes on September 15th. This, again, was an interview done by IGN, and it was done with Peter Tomasi, the writer on Batman and Robin. So for this interview, I will read for IGN, and Don will read for Peter Tomasi. One of the primary goals of the first volume of Batman and Robin was to establish new rogues and new challenges for the dynamic duo. Is that something that's being retained here? 
Absolutely. We're coming at this book with the intention of introducing new bad guys to go up against Batman and Robin at every opportunity. We're going to be challenging them physically and psychologically, because the best stories are ones where our heroes are driven to the edge of their limits, and sometimes that edge is closer than expected. What kind of new villains can we expect to see? Our lead-off villain is a new character called Nobody. He's a badass that goes way back into Bruce's early days. The animosity these two have for each other is quite personal. Down the pike, Pat and I have all these new villains up our sleeve that we can't wait to bring to life. It's important for us to create new mythology for the Batverse. We want to leave new toys behind just like those who came before us. There's no shortage of Batman books going into September. What does Batman and Robin offer readers that others do not? Honestly, I'm looking at this book as the one you want to come for the relationship dynamic. My A-plot is really about Bruce and Damien living and working together. Of course, there'll be plenty of action, but my focus is zeroed in on the hearts and minds of these two characters and putting them through something emotionally that will alter their ongoing relationship forever. There will be no intricate plot machinations. This is running and gunning with two characters who need and want to understand each other. It's hard on your sleeve. Blood is thicker than water ties that bind storytelling with the two best characters in comics. I feel lucky to have the chance to tell this story. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Well, based on issue number one, which we'll talk about a little bit later, this character, Nobody, has yet to really have a huge effect. It did have an effect on a specific character in the Batman universe, but not Batman and Robin yet. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that he says, again, that there's going to be a lot of focus on the relationships between these two characters. That was very evident from issue number one, but... I'm really hoping it doesn't focus too heavily on the relationships and not enough action because there needs to be a a decent balance between the action and the drama. I would agree, but at the same time, I'm not so much concerned for that because I felt that Batman and Robin had a perfect balance of the character dynamics put up against the action. I thought that was one of the best balances I've seen from these new number one issues. So I'm liking how the title is going right now. And to hear that it's essentially going to be what I found it to be in the first issue. I'm still excited for this. I also think that, yeah, the, the first issue had a really good balance, and the, the relationship portion of the story, in my opinion, was actually the better written one. So the fact that that was actually his focus makes me happy, because if he was really trying to make that action the most awesome part of the book, I'd be having questions right now. I'm just wondering if there are going to be any, you know, ties to classical literature, because, you know, people who know Homer's Odyssey know that when Odysseus stabbed Polyphemus in the eye, Polyphemus ran around saying, nobody hurt me, nobody hurt me, because Homer, you know. So I just wonder if there will be some sort of tie to that, or I'm just stretching, I don't know. Could be a Cyclops. Yeah, it could be. All right. Then the next bit of news we have is on September 19th, the books for December were announced. Instead of running through every single issue, we'll run through some of the highlights. The very first thing is that the biggest release of the month may in fact be a one-shot entitled Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes. The issue will be written by Grant Morrison, no surprise there, with art by Cameron Stewart and Chris Burnham. The issue appears to be the issues 9 and 10 of Batman Incorporated that were never released, but with slight changes due to the new DCU. Stephanie Brown will be teaming with Batman as originally planned, but in the guise of spoilers. So that's different as we saw in not only Batgirl, but also hinted in Batman Incorporated that Batman was supposed to be teaming with Stephanie Brown as Batgirl. Clearly she is no longer Batgirl and she's spoiler given the relaunch that's going to be happening in the issue. I'm wondering if they had to go back and kind of redraw that issue because we've seen the cover where it was him and Batgirl, Stephanie as Batgirl, and now they're saying it's spoiler. It's great we know that Stephanie Brown is still within this new universe, and obviously if she is and Barbara's Batgirl now, 
then if she's still a crime fighter, she would be spoiler. The big question, obviously, is whether she was never Batgirl or if she just went back to being spoiler. And I'm wondering how this issue is going to reflect that, especially since we saw that cover with Stephanie Brown Batgirl months ago. I'm really wondering how this is going to play out. I'm just really looking forward to this because I was saying when this 52 was announced, I was worried about how it would affect Batman Incorporated. I'm glad that these storylines are still carrying on. And like Don said, I'm happy that Steph is still around in the Batman universe. I wonder about the promo art they released because it's a faux cover or maybe it's the final cover. I don't know, but it has Batman in its pre-Flashpoint costume. So have they read on the inside of the book to reflect the new costume? And will we see the red hooded Flashpoint woman in Batman Incorporated? That's what I want to know. I was super excited hearing about this, and John was actually the one to tell me, and I think I went on all sorts of sites and was very giddy about it. So I'm glad to see Steph back in some form, at least. I am more concerned about how she's going to be treated as spoiler, not only her character, but then how her character is going to react to her, because I'm kind of in the past now with Cassandra and reading through her run, and obviously spoiler does not have a good reputation. She's not very well respected, whereas Batgirl, she earned that good reputation and she was accepted by Batman as well as the major characters of DCU. So I would like to know what her standing is, and that's what I'm most concerned about. All right, and as far as the other things with the solicitations for December, as far as creator changes goes, there's just a few. Current Batwing artist Ben Oliver steps aside for Criss Cross. And over on Nightwing, Trevor McCarthy fills in for Eddie Barrows, although this is just filling in as writer Kyle Higgins confirmed on his Twitter page. We assume it's for one issue, could be a couple more, but we know it's at least for one issue. Trevor McCarthy clearly has some history with Kyle Higgins since Trevor McCarthy did a lot of the art on Batman Gates of Gotham. On to some character developments, Batgirl seems to be making her rounds around the Bat books by not only starting in her own series, but also appearing in Nightwing and Birds of Prey. And over in Batman and Robin, the origin of Nobody is revealed. That's on to month four with the same villain for Batman and Robin. The Batman Universe cast of characters will also be appearing in a wide range of DC titles, including All-Star Western, Justice League, Justice League International, and Suicide Squad. And those are actual books that the solicitations list Batman Universe characters that are appearing, at least as far as the solicitation says. So, a lot going on in December, as you've seen, the New 52 really is focusing on the Batman Universe. I'm not surprised about Ben Oliver having to have a fill-in artist because from the looks of his work, it looks like it probably takes him quite a while to do. This actually answers a question that I was going to ask when we got to the Nightwing and Batman issues. So I'm glad that there is going to be some crossover between titles, but sometimes I think there's too much of that. And I think that some of these characters need to build their books on their own without having Papa Bat be in there or vice versa. So the next interview we have comes on September 19th. This interview is done with writer Judd Winnick, specifically talking about his work with Catwoman with IGN. So I will read for IGN, and the wonderful voice actor Stella will read for Judd Winnick. Who is Catwoman to you? What role does she play in the life of Bruce Wayne and Gotham City? Catwoman is addicted to danger. She's a leap-before-you-look sort of person. She's someone who has a dark and mysterious past that has made her into what she is. She's pretty brilliant, which is both a help and a hindrance. The help? It's made her a really excellent thief. Being a great criminal is not unlike being a detective. You gotta do your due diligence. You gotta do your legwork, your intel. Talk to your insiders. Know your moves. Make a plan and execute it. 
Much of this story will have a low-tech, Ocean's Eleven feel. It's about the job, the caper, the hindrance for Selena being this smart. She's so good at what she does that very little has been said to stop her. And Bruce Wayne slash Batman is an addiction as well. <laughs> Nothing could be dumber for a thief than to be pursuing Batman. But she just can't help herself. Gotham is a piece of wealth, power, and dirt. Catwoman does very well with all three of those descriptors. Do Bruce and Selina have a history here? Or are we going to witness their relationship develop? Yes and yes. Most recently, Catwoman has been running amok with Harley Quinn Poison Ivy. Does she have any friends slash allies in this new series? Or is this a one-woman show? We are getting back to basics. So much of it is her flying soul. But she's got people. There's a fence who sells her stolen goods and also happens to be a great intel source. There will be a cop. There will be Batman. Will Holly be featured in the book at all? I love Holly Robinson. I always have, but no. This is a fresh start, and Holly is not part of it. Let the griping begin. The truth is, Holly doesn't fit into this persona of Catwoman. Selina is younger. She is less dependable. And I don't see her playing big sister to anyone. For me, that's what Holly always was, her kid's sister. And I love that, but we're going elsewhere now. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. All I have to say is, obviously, we're going to have some varying opinions when it comes to the reviews for Catwoman number one. It is kind of unfortunate that we're not going to be seeing Holly Robinson because I think Holly Robinson does have a huge part of Selena Kyle's history, working way, way back into the early stories, not so much the Golden and Silver Age stories, but more of the more modern version of Catwoman. Holly Robinson has played a very significant role with the character. I think it's kind of a missed opportunity for Judd Winnick not to have Holly show up, but if he knows other ways to catch the audience, I'm sure he will. Yeah, I mean, gripping as that interview was, it seems that Tony Daniel and Judd Winnick don't really talk that much, but I'll get into that later. I think he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do, and yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it that's not going to be said later. I'm just surprised that entire interview he didn't say sexy. Actually, I will say that I don't think it's a bad thing that Holly Robinson wouldn't be there. I hope that she's not taken out of the continuity, but I think that having her right up there would be a little too much to introduce for a first issue, so I wouldn't disagree with him just not including her at the beginning, personally. It would have made that last scene much more interesting. Wait for the review! Alright, the next bit of news we have comes on September 20th. The Vulture blog, which is the blog for the New York Magazine, talked with Scott Snyder about his run on Batman, and this was literally the day before the issue was actually released. So for this interview, I will read for Vulture... And Joe will read for Scott Snyder, although this is only a one-question interview because a lot of the questions were asked in the past, we've covered them in the past, so again, just one question. DC has pretty much relaunched the entire universe. Is this Batman different than what people are used to? I think every time somebody takes up the mantle and writes Bruce, he's there, Bruce, and that's part of the fun. In the terms of what has changed, barely anything has. If you're somebody who's followed him... All the stuff you like historically, it's still there. Our story is really about the notion that Bruce doesn't know Gotham the way he thinks he does. To him, Gotham is his oldest ally, his home, and his comfort zone. But the city is hundreds of years old, and Batman has only been Batman for a short while, comparatively. So what if the city belongs to another symbol before Batman? The idea is that a secret enemy has existed in Gotham for hundreds of years, 
and they're going to bring the whole weight of history to bear against Batman and the Bat family. To me, what Gotham does best is that it tries to take the greatest strength and convince you that it's your greatest weakness as a hero. For Bruce, that's his confidence, that he knows this city better than anyone and can be its ultimate protector. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. So, the takeaway from that interview should be that Scott Snyder is kind of, in most senses, the spokesperson for the Bat Books. I don't know that anybody would disagree with me with that statement because, essentially, what he's doing with Batman, everybody's really enjoying. And, for the most part, DC is really getting Scott Snyder out there to not only promote Batman and everything going on with what he's doing with Batman, but also... You know, he's doing Swamp Thing and he's doing American Vampire, all which are in some way a DC property. And because of that, I think DC is really using Scott Snyder as the spokesperson for Batman specifically. And a lot of the general comments about the Batman universe seem to be coming from Scott Snyder. What he says here is, you know, everything that we know has happened. It's just that some things are going to change as time progresses, which doesn't really explain a lot of the questions that we've asked in the past. But at the same time, you know, at least there's that sense of anything that we remember from Bruce's history is still there. Now, clearly that can't be the case with everything because there's certain things that have changed and have shown that have changed that did not happen. So we'll talk about those probably on a different podcast or even more so maybe when we have a discussion on a future episode. But there are some things that have changed from Bruce's history that are clearly evident. The last bit of comic news we have comes on September 23rd. Tony Daniel offered a little bit of a commentary about Detective Comics number one over at Comic Book Resources. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources and John will read for Tony Daniel. When we last talked about how you drew Bruce during your Batman run, you compared him to Dick Grayson, saying he was a bull to Dick's more graceful deer. In this first issue, while you streamlined his costume a bit, Bruce still retains that hulking quality. To your mind, are you still drawing the Batman bull? Well, I don't think so, really. He's bigger and badder than the Dick Grayson version of Batman, but he's not as bulky as I drew him when I reunited with Grant Morrison for Batman number 701 and 702. Bruce is younger here, so right now my approach is strong and brutal while being graceful and agile. I'm thinking a little more like Neil Adams' Batman with a little Frank Miller grit thrown in. As someone used to white-haired old-timer Commissioner Gordon, it threw me for a loop to see the red-haired Commissioner in the first issue. How did you go about de-aging Gordon, visually and story-wise? <laughs> for me, it was easy. The colorist just had to pick the right color shade. But we'll see how the younger Gordon plays in the issues ahead. Is that splash a sign of things to come for your story? Are you setting out to make this Batman and the relaunched Detective Comics bloodier and more grotesque than before? Each story will be different, and they won't all be this graphic. The style of Detective Comics will continue to be bold and in your face. These are stories that suit me best, and I'm looking forward to telling many more in Detective Comics. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. All I really have to say about this is, when the question's asked about him drawing Bruce Wayne, I think Combo Resources nailed it a little bit better than the guy who's drawing Batman. He does look like a hulking character compared to how he's presented in every other title right now. And in addition to that, to say he looks like Neil Adams' Batman with a little bit of Frank Miller, I think it's a lot of Frank Miller with maybe a little bit of Neil Adams. Because Frank Miller, besides Batman Year One, everything he did seemed to be Bruce Wayne as this hulking man in comparison to Neil Adams, which essentially the same basic stylization of the character has appeared in all the other titles. So I think Tony Daniel got his words mixed up there. 
I would agree. I don't see a single bit of Neil Adams in this design. In fact, if you look at that cover for Detective, I mean, Batman has like a square jaw. He's very broad. He's very bulky. I'm not going to say he's as bulky as the Frank Miller drawn Batman, but I see a lot of influence of that design and virtually none of that. If anything, I see more of a Neil Adams influence if there is any, and there's not that much in his Joker design. But artistically, I mean, I think the art's good, but... Personally, I don't like Batman being built like a brick, you know, big this thick person, because how is he so athletic and acrobatic? But at the same time, I mean, he is the artist, and he can design them however he wants to design. I like the way Tony Daniel has been drawing Batman all so far, I mean, it's only been one issue. But I definitely agree with everyone else that it's much more Frank Miller-inspired than anything else I can notice. And I think I did say this in the last episode, but I think... Daniel's style is best when it's a bit grittier, and I think that contrasts a bit with Bruce's new costume, which is very sleek and armoury and almost futuristic, which is a bit of an odd contrast. Yeah, when this came out as the first solo Batman book, and you open up the book, and it's that first two-page splash of Batman, he's a bit of a tank in that shot. It's only a couple of steps removed, in my mind, from End of Dark Knight Returns Batman. He's just, he's really bulky, doesn't have much of a neck. I don't mind it. I like Tony Daniel's art of that issue. I really like that splash page, but it's not at all what he's describing it as in this interview. The other thing I have to mention about this is it is interesting because, you know, what Joe just said about the costume that we've seen in the other books is much sleeker and more, not so much futuristic, but more current. And it's not dumbed down. It's more like simplistic. And with the costume that seems to be appearing in Detective Comics seems a little bit more not as sleek and not as modern as what's appearing in the other books. So it almost leads me to believe that, you know, because Detective Comics is saying that Batman has been around for only six years and these other books don't seem to be following that same characterization, it's almost like Tony Daniels writing the series from the year six perspective, but nobody else is necessarily following that same wavelength, which also conflicts with what's happening in Justice League, but I guess the cohesion can only go so far. According to interviews, there is a whole lot of conversation going on among all the different Bat people as far as the continuity goes. So theoretically, they should all be on the same page, but some people didn't know that Batgirl was going to show up in Birds of Prey 4, so I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, where are you hearing that they're having these conversations? Because what I've been seeing, it seems like there's been a lack of communication. I can't remember it was a Scott Snyder interview. It was something I read this week. It might have actually been from that same Scott Snyder interview we had a few seconds ago just another part that wasn't included in the show. But I do remember somebody saying somewhere that the Batman people have been having a lot of talks. Maybe that's just... Yeah, that was said a number of different places. I know that some people were talking about it online, too. Scott Snyder was saying on his Twitter account that that was also happening and that they were having some conferences. And I know Mike March specifically said also on Twitter that it was either a week or two weeks ago, a lot of the Bat writers were actually in New York at the same time and some people attended via Skype because they weren't in town. But for the most part, there was a number of different things that were happening due to the fact of trying to have this cohesion. It's just, I guess, in my mind, it's just there's some distinct problems where I think, you know, there's also the conflicting thing of the comments that were made in some various interviews over the last week that were, well, the thing that DC wanted us to do was they wanted us to be able to write the best story that we wanted to write in regards to these characters, which makes sense. But if that conflicts with what everybody else is doing, I think ultimately DC still wants you to write the story that you want to write because that's the story that you're going to do the better job at compared to, oh yes, fall in line with everybody else. Because we know that there's creators out there who don't like to fall in line with everybody else. 
And it may be a matter of telling your stories versus making sure if you drop any references to history that you're name dropping the right things. All right, so that is all the comic news. Let's get right into comic book reviews. And our very first review is Batman and Robin, number one. He gets that attitude from you. But he has your heart, Bruce. You know how proud he is of you, of all of this. But he's young. He needs to figure things out for himself without us pushing him. Batman and Robin, number one. Written by Peter Tomasi. Illustrated by Patrick Gleason, inked by Mick Gray. We begin the new series by following a criminal who's followed by a Russian member of Batman Inc. who's then revealed to be followed by an invisible attacker. The transparent assailant shoots the criminal dead, then breaks several bones in the Russian crime fighter's body. When asked who the attacker is, the character becomes visible and a man in a type of gas mask says, I'm nobody and so are you. This issue is titled Born to Kill, and we cut to Gotham City, where at Stately Wayne Manor, we find Bruce Wayne sitting in his father's study and gazing at the sculpted bust of the late Thomas Wayne. As the clock strikes 10 p.m., Bruce says it's time for a change and goes into the room of his son, Damien. Damien awakes before Bruce gets a chance to wake him up, and while sliding down the bat poles and hopping into the Batmobile, Bruce, now Batman, takes the new Robin to Crime Alley. He explains that this will be the last time he will pay tribute to their deaths and now plans to celebrate their lives, all while Damien shows his constant disregard for the slain grandparents and refusal to become grieved by any casualties that come with the war on crime. We cut to the Gotham University research reactor where we see a gang of brothers attempting to hijack a tank of irradiated fuel, but their plans are interrupted by the appearances of Batman and Robin, and while the Cape Crusaders make mincemeat out of the villains, they are separated as Robin follows the fleeing brothers away from Batman. A submarine ball gyroscope mechanism thing arrives mysteriously, and then aids the villains in their escape, but the boy wonders hot on the heels, grappling the door of the giant ball. Robin attempts to break into the door, but all of a sudden, a stabilizer program activates, setting the ball on fire and frying the crooks inside. The ball's explosion causes a rupture of the building's foundation, but Batman manages to save the lives of the people in the next room. Catching up with Robin, the dynamic duo hashes out over what really happened to the dead crooks inside. In the final scene, we cut to Moscow where the Batman Inc. member is chained up and hanging over a vat of acid. The mysterious assailant slowly begins dipping the poor sap into a vat of acid, and the issue ends with the words, This new global circus act of his has to end. It's time for Bruce Wayne to pay a visit. Continued in Bad Blood. Alright, Batman Robin number one. I think for the first issue, this was a pretty good issue. The thing that's interesting to me is this character, Nobody, which we don't know a whole lot about, because that'll obviously be revealed over time, and as we talked about earlier, his origin will be revealed in issue number four in December. But what's interesting to me is that we get somewhat of a clarification that Batman Incorporated still, in fact, has happened, because we have this Russian version of Batman, which we've never actually seen before, and I think it's kind of a shame that we really didn't see or really know about the character. It would have been nice if they would have used a character that we actually saw in another book, so we knew a little bit more about the character other than some guy who's in Russia who is Batman. The other thing that's interesting is the one thing I was super afraid of with Batman Robin written by Peter Tomasi was, I was afraid that we were going to get too much dialogue in regards to the relationship between Bruce and Damien. I'm just as much as the next person want to be able to see Bruce and Damien working together as a team, interacting with each other on a regular basis. I want to see that. But at the same time, I didn't know that Peter Tomasi was actually the person to do that based on some of his more dialogue relationship issues in the past. I specifically am talking about the last issue of Nightwing before that volume ended. It was really like a 
complete mess in my mind and really a really bad way of portraying all of these characters outside of their costumes and I was really concerned that that was going to happen in this series and this specific issue. Peter Tomasi did a decent job at getting across the point of why Batman is suddenly teaming with Damian Wayne, why Damian Wayne kind of holds a little bit of resentment towards Bruce because of the events of the past. The only thing that I have to say as a kind of a con to this issue is the fact that for some reason it seems as if, again, this was another story that Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason did prior to the relaunch, and they decided, hey, this will be the perfect issue to set this up with. Yes, before the relaunch, Damien wouldn't have been teaming with Bruce, but because there's elements that are happening outside of what's actually happening within the normal Batman universe, meaning they're including Batman Incorporated, to me it makes it seem like it was a plan before, or maybe not the actual story, but the idea of the villain. The idea of the villain was concocted before they decided that Bruce was going to be teaming with Damien, and it just works a little bit better now because not only is the character nobody going after Bruce Wayne, but that also implies that he's going to be, in some regards, having to go against Batman Bruce Wayne. So that's the only downfall, because it did feel like this was something that they conceived before the relaunch, and it just happened to maybe get a couple little tweaks here and there, or the overall story changed from focusing so much on the character Nobody to more of a focus on Bruce and Damien because of the relaunch. But I think the art was okay, it was pretty standard, nothing really special, but I think for a first issue this one was pretty solid, and I'm looking forward to the next issue. Three and a half out of five batterings. This was the first Batman comic from the New 52 where it was exactly what I was hoping it to be. It was everything I wanted it to be, and I was 100% satisfied. I really, really enjoyed this issue. And it's really just because of the stuff I've been saying that I've wanted to see from the title, like the relationship between Bruce Wayne and Damian Wayne. Now, I understand if people have a problem with Damian acting like a punk again, but I really buy it because I think that after his relationship with Dick Grayson, whereas in the last couple of months, it was really a classic Batman and Robin relationship where they were buddies and they trusted each other. To go from that to Bruce Wayne's father, who has this huge legacy that he's trying to live up to, and someone he has barely gotten to know, I find the angst easy to read into, and I really buy how he's treating Batman here. I think the general story is interesting. I actually like the fact that it has something to do with Batman Inc. and another title. I actually think it's actually very logical. And I'm glad that the mystery is a good mystery because the guy knows Batman is Bruce Wayne. So this was, I mean, I love the action. I love the fight sequence. I love the uh, interaction. I love the acknowledgement of Dick Grayson's Batman near the end. And I don't really have any problems with this issue, honestly. I mean, I don't think it was the best of the lot we have tonight, but at the week it was released, it was the best book I thought I've read. So I'll give this a very, very strong four and a half out of five batterings. I know it's a relaunch, but that doesn't stop me from being really annoyed that we're back to Damien being written like a word that I'm not allowed to say on the Batman universe. And what I did like in the issue was I liked the Russian Batman, and I thought it was a real shame that we didn't get more character development with him, especially thought it was a very cool character design. And the art overall was pretty good. That was about it, because what I didn't like was the barrage of cliches, the interpretation of Damien, particularly bearing in mind that this should be accessible for new readers, and if this was the first introduction of the character for me, I'd be really put off. I don't like the idea of the villain at all, and I get bored of the amount of time artistic license is used just to make something look cool. On the other hand, I think the highlight of the issue for me was trying to work out why a public swimming pool was situated directly above the radiation research lab. 
I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. I didn't really enjoy this that much. I'm going to kind of agree with Joe's comment about new reader friendliness. Although I did enjoy this book, there's a lot in here that I'm not entirely sure we have the context for that we might need on the first issue. This is the second book to make references to Batman Incorporated without telling us that there's a Batman Incorporated. We had Batwing in the first week. We have Russian Batman in this book. Mike's been said, I kind of wish that, you know, Russian Batman did more than just come in and be Russian Batman and die. Theoretically, he's a character with a reason for being Batman and, you know, he has his own story, but we don't know what that is because he's dead now. But I do enjoy the interaction between Bruce and Damien. I know who Damien is because I've been following the status quo for the last couple years. If I hadn't, the idea that Batman has a son is not something that's really commonly known. So who he is and where he came from, I feel like we're going to get more Damien background in issue two, and that's good. But since Damien is the oddball here, I would have preferred that they had reversed those two notions and put more of Damien's background in this issue and save the Batman origin review for next issue, since that's more commonly known amongst you know the general population. But I did enjoy the story up until the action scene. I felt like the art in the action sequence was a bit hard to follow as far as who was doing what and where and why. Kind of pulled me out trying to piece it all together. With the pool being right above the radioactive rods and the bat gyro down the sewer tunnel. I don't know, it just lost me a little bit. So with the art pulling me down a little bit, I'm going to say three and a half out of five batterings. This issue drops you right into the action, and it's not with our two heroes either. I think that it gives a quick start to the issue and certainly sets the pace as well as gets the reader to ask the question, who is this guy in the bat suit, which kind of is a lower point because I even asked, you know, who is this person? Should I know who this is? The first scene with Bruce I thought is so well done because it's simple and even harkens back to Batman Year One. The first scene with Damien really sets the tone for the character so you know what type of Damien we're actually going to be introduced to. And I find it comical to see how he sleeps, though it actually doesn't really surprise me all peaceful and no blankets, you know, no cuddling with the teddy bear. A whoopee, if you will. You may be watching too much 60s Batman if you thought that Bruce and Damien were going to change costumes just by going down the bat poles. Maybe I was alone in this. I think we all breathed a sigh of relief, though, when we saw Alfred actually hand something physically to Bruce. So hopefully mm. there is no, you know, avatar. I don't know if anyone else mentioned this. Then we have the sewer scene, I think, which really shows us that this is a new Batman, not only because it takes place below Crime Alley rather than at the actual site, but because Batman seems ready to move on in a way. And in any case, I think this scene was really powerful in Batman's words and actions. I agree with John that the action scenes after were sometimes hard to follow, if only for the fact that the three bad guys all looked alike. And I got the sense that they were triplets anyway, so it's purposeful, but it was just generally tough to follow. And along with what Joe said, the pool scene was a little confusing. I had to look at it for a little while to figure out, wait, what is going on right here? I thought the issue got the voices of Batman and Robin down perfectly. I was definitely wondering before this DC new thing happened what the relationship of father and son was going to be like. And I think you can tell how strained it is. I think it's believable that it's going to be like this. But, you know, Damien comparing Bruce to Dick and then saying that Bruce was easier to look up to when he was away. You know, it's obvious that we have precious little Damien here. It will be nice to see a happy relationship between the two in the future at some point. But it wouldn't be reasonable to have that be an easy journey. Journey, so I think it's going to be interesting to follow it as we go. I miss Steph's influence on him because I think he was softening, but I think this is the Damien that needs to be here right now because it's not going to be as easy as it was with Dick. But I thought this was a great issue. I was pleasantly surprised, though it's not like I came in thinking that it was going to be awful. And I, too, give it 4.5 out of 5 batterings. 
if I can just say one more thing to respond to what Stella said about the hologram Alfred. I mentioned this on the last episode about how he's a hologram in Detective Comics and he kind of talks like he's just a hologram. So I went and did get confirmation from both Mike Martz and Dan Didia that although Alfred may use a hologram occasionally, or Batman might as well for strategic purposes, Alfred still is a really real boy. And it was really awesome to see him being very non-hologramic in Batman number one, as we'll see in a little bit. And over on the website, Melinda gave the issue 3 out of 5, and Comic Unal gave the book 4 out of 5. So that is going to give Batman Robin number 1 out of 7 reviews, 4 out of 5 Batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, Batwoman number 1. Who are you? You're the great detective. Figure it out. Batwoman number one, co-written by both J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman, with art by J.H. Williams III. The issue opens with a couple recollecting the kidnapping of their children to a detective Sawyer at the Gotham City Police Department. As they describe, a woman came through the window, bringing with her the feeling of drowning. Batwoman also came to save the family, but it was too late, as the children, along with the woman, vanished. Before leaving, Batwoman made the promise that she would save the children. Detective Sawyer, on the other hand, does not, for obvious ethical implications. Meanwhile, Kate Kane is in the entrance hall to the building, engrossed in a picture of Renee Montoya, who we assume to be dead in the DCNU. As Sawyer leaves her office, she gets talking with Kate, where they arrange a date, before we jump to Kate's home and base. Here we're introduced to Bette Kane, Kate's cousin and former Flamebird. The two heroes go out on a patrol, at this point, we discover Kate isn't talking with her father. In New York, the head of the DEO has called a meeting with Agent Chase, giving her an assignment to discover the identity of Batwoman. Back in Gotham, another child has been found drowned, and the only lead that the police have is the fact that the killer is being described as the urban legend of the weeping woman. We cut to Batwoman's base, where Kate's dad has shown up. They get into an argument, where we see the history of Batwoman before Kate storms off. Later, under the guise of Batwoman, Kate investigates the scene of the latest child murder, where she is dropped in upon by Batman, who offers her a proposition to be continued. Alright, Batwoman number one. I think that this issue did a perfect job of setting up the character and the events, and not negating everything that's happened in the past. This is probably the one series so far in my mind that doesn't necessarily take a clean slate approach, and what I mean by that is not so much that the other books have changed so drastically, but more of the aspect of this book is carrying along the story of Batwoman that we saw in Detective Comics, that we saw in Batwoman number zero. This doesn't have any sudden changes. You know, we don't go from Dick Grayson one month being Batman to Bruce Wayne being the main Batman the next month. There's no changes like that. It addresses some of the things that were left hanging at the end of the run that Batwoman was in in Detective Comics with Flamebird. We saw that one of the plot elements that was kind of left hanging before was Flamebird and Betty Kane. That kind of gotten some kind of, not necessarily resolution, but furtherization of that story. There was a nice little recap of everything that's happened up until this point, too. We find out exactly why Kate is not really pleased with her father at this point she she does a jo- she does a good job of explaining that we see you know at even at the very end of the issue we see batman coming to see batwoman to say you know talk about this crime that they're going to try to solve and we see that that's kind of like another carry on from what we saw in batwoman number 0 with batman kind of interacting with batman so that they understand each other to a point so it's nice to see these these plot elements further themselves even though it's very different writer it's not greg rucka which was the main writer for 
all the stuff on Detective Comics. And it also brought in Hayden Blackman and, you know, J.H. Williams does the art with this. Amy Reader will be doing some of the art in future issues. The one thing that I guess I wasn't super keen on, as lovely as J.H. Williams' art is, and trust me when I say I, I really, really love his art, the one thing to me that is somewhat off-putting to a certain degree is just how many splash pages there really is. Mm. And some people may say, well, that's the best way to feature art is with a splash page. But in my mind, it's like, if you can do amazing art with two pages, you should be able to do amazing art with one page. And I think that the problem that I found with this issue was that the splash pages that had the art on it looked amazing. Nothing against that. But when you got to the pages that were single pages, they weren't nearly as good. And they weren't as nearly as amazing as some of the other pages. And I think that's kind of a testament to how much work he puts into those splash pages compared to some of the other work. And I think that's the only thing that's kind of a letdown in this. And there's not very many letdowns to use with this issue. I think this was a great first issue. I am definitely looking forward to what proposition Batman actually has for Batwoman. I'm looking forward to what happens with Betty Kane. There's a lot of stuff I'm looking forward to with this series. So Batwoman number one, I'm going to give four out of five bad ranks okay as one of the people who is generally new to batwoman in terms of actually reading her adventures i enjoyed this i thought this was a straight up solid first issue and i think it was actually it actually read like i jumped into a, a series that's been going on rather than a, a brand new thing i've seen jh williams art before obviously i actually most likely remember it from um his very short detective film with paul dini and i've always loved it and the story was interesting I mean, I don't have any problems with this, but I do have a couple of questions. And these aren't pithy questions. These are just genuine questions that I really want to know because I'm, I'm just not sure what's going on. And I'm wondering if pe- and people on this podcast can answer them for me. Like, for instance, I'm not, how come Betty Kane is working with Kate Kane? Because Betty Kane has, she's been a crime fighter longer than Kate Kane has, right? Has, was that in the earlier arc or is this new for her? The, the early arc didn't necessarily address her her past crime fighting. I mean, obviously they mention it in this issue, but it really was Betty Kane essentially presented herself to K. Kane and said, Hey, look at me. I'm flame bird. I'm going to be your sidekick. That's, that's how it's going to be. It was never addressed when they first introduced flame bird or Betty Kane in the costume, revealing herself as flame bird that never even came across as, Oh, I've been fighting crime. I've been, I was a part of the teen Titans at a point that never even got addressed. So that is something different that we're seeing now that we weren't seeing before. Okay, that's that's. I'm I'm just wondering like like why Kate is treating her like such a rookie. And she's saying, you know, I was a Teen Titan. I, 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 and then she's like, oh, you still have work to do. I'm kind of wondering where this um, self righteousness is coming from. But that's not too big. And this is something I've been wondering uh, ever since I first put this issue down. Why does Kate can't have like pale white Joker like skin all over her body? Yeah. She's just an albino. With with green eyes. I, she doesn't like it when you make fun of her, Don. I, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like that in 52, which is where I was introduced to this character, her her pale skin. So I, I also wonder what that development is or why. No, it was just, it was just a question, like, because you see her from head to toe. And I was just wondering, like, like really, because I, I thought when I was seeing the images for her last run that she just, like, did the Harley Quinn makeup job. She just made up her face to make her secret identity stronger. But when you see that her whole skin is like that, it's just it's, it's, it's just odd. And I kind of wish that we were addressed rather than just being, oh, it's the art. But I enjoyed this issue. I don't have too much to say about it besides those questions. And I'm interested to see where it's going. So four out of five batterings. 
obviously the art was spectacular in this issue. I really love how J.H. Williams switches from his painted style for Batwoman and then this, the line drawing, the more traditional art for the out-of-costume work. And I think in a way, I actually prefer the line drawing. I really like the, the page compositions as well, and they're really beautiful throughout. I like the way Batwoman's sexuality was handled really well. It was really subtle, and it wasn't just sort of shoved in your face like Catwoman's was. I'm not sure how much input J.H. Williams had on this script, because the writing came off really strong, and I have confidence in the book, because I believe Williams is going to become the sole writer. Have I got that right? I think you're right. He was originally the sole writer, and then they brought in the other guy because he was a more experienced writer. Either way, I think it's come across really well, and it doesn't feel like too big of a jump from Greg Rucker's work. And I thought the character history was handled really well. It's quite accessible for newer readers, and it wasn't really exposition-heavy. It wasn't just this happened, then this happened. It It was all told through the art, and I thought it looked really great. And even though it took years for this issue to come out, I really think it was worth it, and I'm going to give this 5 out of 5 batterings. Yeah, this is my favorite book of the week. I was absolutely in love, blown away by the art. Um, I also enjoyed, like Joe said, the different styles. It's not just the painted and the line, but it's also the page layouts, because you have these really non-standard two-page spreads of panels swashing across the pages with all this other stuff going on around the panels that does illustrate what's being talked about, but it's not actually in the serial storytelling. It's just really, really amazing stuff. Some some good stuff that I just I just haven't seen done in comics before. There were a lot of characters in this book and a lot of background information just kind of being tossed around. I didn't really mind that though cuz this is a character that has some history and we're entering her story at a beginning point but not the beginning point. And that happens a lot in a lot of books. It's you know, some people might say it's not new reader friendly, but I think that, you know, sometimes you read stuff where you just, you're getting to know the characters as you go along and their stuff's just going to get thrown at you. As opposed to Batman and Robin, where I feel like Batman, you know, his mythos is so well known that the presence of Damien being unexplained was just kind of strange. As a big fan of early 90s Superman, post-crisis Superman, it was really cool to see Maggie Sawyer here. Since reading this, I've come to understand that she's been in Gotham for a while pre-Flashpoint, but I didn't know about any of that. It was just, you know, all of a sudden Maggie Sawyer. She's, you know, Gotham City Police Department. And it was kind of nice, you know, conservation of characters. She's an already established lesbian character, and she and Batwoman may have a connection there during the story, which, speaking of, the lesbian aspects of the character were present, but they weren't, like, inflamed or sensationalized. I I have the understanding that's just kind of been the way that's been handled the whole time. I'm a big fan of that. You know, stories that have guys asking girls out are just, you know, normal everyday stories that have a girl ask a girl out in the middle of a story without making a big deal out of it. I appreciated that. This was, like I said, my favorite book of that week, and I'm going to give it five out of five as well. First of all, the art is just amazing. I think it was just so beautiful. And I have seen this before, but getting to see it again was just just a pleasure. And it's not every issue that starts off with not one, not two, but three two-page splash pages. And then later there are five of the same. And I may have to disagree with Dustin. 
but I actually liked the two-page splash pages. I think they really give us information about the past as well as pushing us forward in the story. When I first read this issue, which was actually before Catwoman, I thought that there was a lot of nudity. And, you know, it wasn't gratuitous, but I still found it a little strange to have Kate be naked in front of her niece. Maybe that's just how families roll. I don't know. I like the introduction of Maggie Sawyer. I think it'll be interesting to see if Batwoman is going to have a quasi-Gotham police department handler like other Bat family members have had. I think we can already sense that the shipping uh, with these two may be, you know, that may be in the future. I do hope that her shift from Metropolis, Maggie's shift, is explained, though I feel like in my reading of Cassandra, I've already kind of discovered that she's shifting towards Gotham already, but I would like to know why she's here in Gotham and not Metropolis, and whether Renee Montoya is indeed dead, or that's just a red herring. I'd also like to know what the current standing is between Batman and Batwoman. What does he know about her, her identity, and things like that. This was probably one of the only books that I was really coming in as a new reader, like Dawn. I read three issues of Detective when she was in it way back, the whole Bruce Wayne being dead business way back when, but really not enough to give me knowledge of the character. As a semi-new reader on Kate, I think that DC did an okay job, but they tied it so much to the past that I could really only just look at the images rather than understand and interpret them without text. So I think this will help old readers be happy, but I don't know how new readers coming into it will feel. Like, I didn't feel as comfortable as something like Supergirl or something like that. So I give this 3.5 out of 5 batterings. All right. So that is going to give Batwoman number one out of five reviews, an average of four and a half out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batman number one. Oh, yes. Written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo, and inks by Jonathan Glampian. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. The issue starts off with a monologue of Gotham and the history of Gotham, but then it quickly turns into what appears to be a breakout at Arkham Asylum, and Batman has to battle a number of his worst enemies, including Two-Faced Killer Croc, Professor Pig. We even see some cameos from some other characters like James Gordon Jr. Essentially, the breakout wraps up with Bruce as Batman teaming with the Joker to defeat the villains and essentially make the breakout no longer relevant and not actually take place. We hear a little bit of a discussion between Batman and James Gordon on top of police headquarters where Gordon says, well, it seems that you were teaming with the Joker. Is that true? And he says, yeah, it must have just been a trick with the cameras. We then see a really nice page of the Batcave showing how big the Batcave actually is. And Bruce is sitting there standing right next to the Joker, and the Joker is making all kinds of comments about how impressive the new back computer is. Then we suddenly find out that the Joker is not actually the Joker. It's none other than Dick Grayson wearing a EMP mask, which makes his face appear as something completely different. We then see that Bruce is going off to a charity event, and Dick will be accompanying him along with Tim and Damien. Bruce goes to this charity event and essentially tells Gotham City's elite that he's looking to build towards Gotham's future, and there's a lot of changes that they're looking to do. Change some derelict industrial neighborhoods 
to some modernized living neighborhoods along with completely redoing the transit system as well. Everybody seems really thrilled about the idea. Vicky Vale approaches Bruce Wayne after the fact and introduces him to Lincoln March, which is the other candidate for Gotham's mayoral campaign going against Sebastian Haiti. And after they talk about it back and forth, Bruce happens to see that Commissioner Gordon is standing off to the side on the phone, and he uses his back computer contact lenses, which I failed to mention earlier, but actually is a contact lens that allows Bruce to have a number of capabilities, facial recognition, the ability to lip-read and convert to actual audio, as well as number of other things. Essentially, the back computer goes with Bruce just by having this contact lens. Bruce excuses himself and meets up with Harvey Bullock, and they seem to find out that there is a killer in town who went after somebody, essentially a John Doe, but Harvey Bullock and Batman kind of are discussing some of the finer points, and the knives that are poked into this guy looks like he was a target dummy who is pinned to the wall by these knives, have a owl on it. After Batman takes some evidence, he notices that there's something on the wall. He takes Harvey's cigar and actually puts it against the wall, and the words, Bruce Wayne will die tomorrow, is actually burned into the wall with some kind of actual accelerant. While this is all happening, they start to figure out what exactly is happening. Bruce talks to Alfred over the comlink to submit a DNA sample to try to figure out what DNA was actually underneath the fingernails of this John Doe character, as well as to find out some other information. They were trying to figure out exactly what was going on, but suddenly the results of the DNA come back, and it comes back as none other than Dick Grayson. And that is the end of Batman number one. All right, Batman number one. I think this was probably the best issue that has come out so far, and I don't imagine anything coming out that was better than this as far as the Batman universe goes. Not only did they do an amazing job at setting up exactly what was going on within the world of Batman, but also establishing very nonchalant way of establishing the characters that are in the main Bat family. The back computer contact lens was the perfect way to say, oh yes, this is Dick Grayson, he was a former Robin, now he's Nightwing. This is Tim Drake, this is Damian Wayne, this is Alfred. Perfect way of introducing the characters without actually introducing it or having some crazy inner monologue to introduce the character, which would be irrelevant and wouldn't actually be happening, and also wouldn't be necessary. The only other thing I could think of is just having the, the crazy editorial box where it says, Bruce Wayne, blah, 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 doing the whole intro that sometimes you see on that first page of the comic where it reveals the actual credits of the issue. I thought that was amazing. I thought the introduction of really a number of different characters was very well planned, and I'm sure that all the characters introduced will play a part into the overall story because Scott Snyder obviously loves to go for that long story arc element with having some smaller stories worked into the actual longer story element. I thought the art was was okay. I'm not... Obviously, I don't read a lot of Marvel comics and Image comics, and I know specifically Greg Capullo comes from Image comics before this, and I know that he has done work at Marvel as well, 
so I'm not as familiar with his art. I don't think it was bad art by any means. I did think that the colors for when Batman's appearing seem to be very dark, and I don't know if that's... I'm, I'm assuming that's on purpose, but at the same point, I, I wish that they would change it up where it's not just so gray. Because when you look at a page and you see a lot of gray, a lot of stuff seems to blend together. With the page that we had where the actual person was stuck to the wall with the knives, you know, the, the, the color that's, that came out was the red. And I don't know that red and me, you know, signifying necessarily the blood was actually supposed to be, or should have been the actual color that was focused on in that, in that page because the character would not have been bleeding all over the wall, even though they had these knives thrown into him. So that that was one thing. But I loved how, you know, I'm sure this Lincoln March character will play a role in the story. I loved how all of the character, all the villains had kind of a role in the beginning of the issue, even though we probably won't see a lot of those villains for a while. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. I thought that the, the technology that's being used in this is ahead of its time. We don't, we don't hear about things like this, and that's exactly what Bruce Wayne should have his hands on, is technology that is, does not exist right now. So, with that being said, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batteries. Scott Snyder, Batman number one. Oh, yes. Seriously, this, this was like the best of the Bat books for me, bar none. And <laughs> was it really any doubt? I mean... To me, and this might come off come off as very pretentious and very subjective. This is really just my opinion. I'm not, I'm not saying this with any truth to it. But a lot of the times in the past several years, it's felt like people were attempting to write Batman. And they kind of like writing as they think they would have written him or whatever. And we've had a very haphazard runs. This felt like a Batman story, like very unconsciously. Like everything felt extremely natural. It was exciting. And it continuity was brought up not no continuity was ignored it was all embraced we get new things we get old things i like the quirky art and it was just it was just good times all over actually this this issue reminded me a lot of grant morrison's first run on batman because if you remember there was a, a scene in the beginning with the joker there was a scene in the, a big scene in the bat cave establishing the bat cave with new technology there was a society scene with batman there was an introduction with a new character and that society's name with Bruce Wayne. It was, there, was, there was a lot of like, um, I don't think that was intentional, but there was a lot of coincidences, which I thought were actually sort of, if you want to believe in that sort of thing, like a, a good omen, because Grant Morrison's run has been pretty celebrated. I thought that the mystery was really, really good, and it makes you want to see what the next issue, obviously. I thought the exposition, like Dustin said, was very, very well handled. It wasn't like, some, sometimes you will get these sort of like captions where it's like Alfred Pennyworth, Butler. And like, there's no, there's no impetus for it. But right here, there's an explanation for it. It's, it's testing out Bruce Wayne's new technology. But of course, he already knows who these people are. But it's a first issue, so not everybody may not know who they are. A couple of things that I didn't figure out, but I was actually talking to Josh, who used to be on the comic cast. And he actually brought up some interesting points. Like Vicky Vale returns in this issue after sort of being exiled, and I suppose with the relaunch, that can kind of go away. But it's just interesting. And also, considering Detective Comics, we assume that Joker has broken out of Arkham Asylum. Is Batman going to mention that Joker is not in Arkham Asylum anymore since Dick Grayson had to be impersonating him? That was, that was just sort of a funny thing that you wonder why after a while. But all that being said, this was an, this was an easy 5 out of 5 batterings if there ever was one. Looking forward to the rest of the run. I'm not sure how I feel about the art. 
I really wasn't keen on it at the start, but it did start to grow on me by the end. And I think with time, I'll get used to it and probably will start enjoying it. But on the other hand, I didn't like the portrayals of Dick and Tim. And I know they're supposed to be younger, but I thought they looked a bit too young, especially Dick with comparison to Nightwing. I thought he looked very short as well. It does seem, and we'll get to this with the Nightwing book, but it does seem to be some kind of crossover tie-in, whether it's just a coincidence and they've both got similar or at least crossing over storylines, or if it's intentional, because I know Scott Snyder and Carl Higgins have worked closely in the past, obviously, with their Gates of Gotham work and things like that. I really enjoyed the cameo appearances and references to Snyder's as well as Morrison's earlier work, and other characters like Professor Pig and James Gordon Jr. As for the contact lenses, I didn't like them. I didn't like them at all. I thought they were as far, I mean, I liked how they were used for exposition. That was good introducing the characters instead of having the editorial box. But other than that, I didn't like them because even with all this futuristic technology that Bruce Wayne is supposed to have, that is so above and beyond anything that is remotely realistic in my books. And I don't, I'm not a fan of that. And it also, I think, with things like the lip-reading things built in, I think that takes away from Bruce being the great detective. So I didn't enjoy that at all. With the introduction of Lincoln March, it would seem to me that he's going to be this this murderer out to get Bruce Wayne. That might be too obvious, but on first read, that's what I got from it. And I'm sure Don would know this as well, but Batman says... I can smell linseed oil, a common paint thinner, which is wrong. That's a oil paint thickener, but oh well. Can't get everything right, Snyder. How did you know I would know that? Because you're I mentioned... Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know I mentioned that on the show before. That's oh, the nice um, detective work. Thank you, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing is, I found that I've really started recognizing Snyder's style, particularly with the thing like every Saturday, the Gotham Gazette, etc., etc. And I'm not sure if I'm starting to get a bit bored of it or if I just find it a bit repetitive. But when I read that, I was like, oh, here we go. This is going to be a common theme throughout this issue. But that's not to say I didn't enjoy the issue because I really did. And I I think it's interesting that I've started noticing these things and whether I'm going to keep noticing it throughout his run or if this, this was just... He's using it again for this one issue, but I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. This was also my favorite of the Bat books, although second of DC overall this week behind Supergirl. It had a, I thought it had a well-rounded treatment of Batman, from the various scoopy-creepy supervillains fighting him at the beginning to the beautiful shot of the massive, complex layout of the Batcave. I, I love that it's like an, an uneven cave that he's had to like set up platforms in on various levels as opposed to just sitting on the cave floor and having his computer set up there because caves don't usually go flat. You know, you had, you had Dick Grayson and he are both working together at the beginning. You have like an intimacy there more than he really has with the other Robins, but you do get to see the other Robins. We get to see Alfred being completely in 100% nothing at all like a hologram. He's out of the Batcave for the first time since the New 52 started. And we get to see Bruce's character, you know, as a philanthropist. His, you know, 
characterization of being a playboy has not been mentioned yet, and it wasn't really mentioned here. So I, I wonder if we're actually going to see that played up at all, or if that's just going to go the way of the Dodo in the New 52 era. It doesn't really matter to me one way or the other. I'm just curious. I did like the, the intro boxes for the Robins. It's a lot like what they do in Legion of Superheroes. When you see a character, you or in the X-Men, you get her name and her powers, just a little box beside their names. That was That's handy, and it was done in story with, with the lenses, so it wasn't completely out of nowhere, because since there's not done anywhere else in the story. Computerized gadgets, I think, are cool, because it is a modern Batman, and he should have more than, than mechanical devices and stuff going on with him. But as somebody who's used a lot of computerized tools in his work, if those ever break your brain goes numb because you're not used to using the old tools from five years ago. You're used to using your computerized tools, and so all of your procedures go away. I don't expect Snyder to use that as a plot device in the in the story, but if this were real life, and we were talking about, you know, real people, and Batman came over to my house and asked for my advice, I'd, I'd advise him to, you know, sometimes go on missions without your computers. You know, just, just to keep those instincts sharp and clear. But they're not real. So, the one thing that I thought was kind of funny about this book was that the Flashpoint woman, she has like the super tiniest, most non-intrusive appearance I've seen in the entire DCU so far. She's this itty-bitty, minuscule person on the first page around a barrel fire with homeless people. Like, the artist didn't care to ever even to try to include her in the story at all, so he just stuck her in his teeny tiny corner. The fact that there's a bad guy out there that we haven't seen yet, I, I'm, I'm kind of digging the mystery point there. I read this book after reading Nightwing. I think that Nightwing would have been more effective if I had read that second, just because this reveal here, I hope it ties into Nightwing, because if they're just similar plots, then that's bad planning. And I was just curious, because I didn't know about any exiled Vicky Vale. I can tell you real quick. So at the end of Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, there was a story where Vicky Vale figured out the identity of pretty much everybody in the Bat family. And when that happened, Ra's al Ghul sent the White Ghost to kill her because of that. And Batman, in turn, saved her and told Ra's al Ghul, no, you're not going to kill her. She's not going to say anything. Vicky, you have to leave Gotham. And she did. Okay. So, when Flash got punched in the face, she was back in her Gotham apartment, I guess. Okay. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm wearing a new costume, and Vicky's back. So, yeah, I really dug the issue. I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five, just because I don't want to call it perfect. But I did really enjoy it. I like Batman number one. It was like a piece of pie. It felt better than Catwoman, which was like a splinter in my eye. He kept his clothes on and used technology, unlike Catwoman, who used proctology. Anyway. <laughs> This was a great issue. I love how it starts with people's thoughts of Gotham going from dark and damn to potentially having hope. I, I liked connecting each one of the Gotham is with a particular villain and then explaining how that connection works. And then, of course, you have a creepy-looking Joker, creepier than normal, I would say, coming out and fighting alongside Batman, which certainly made me do a double take. And I also loved bringing back some uh, past Snyder and, and seeing James Jr., if only for one you know, subtle panel. It's great to see Batman and Gordon debriefing on what just happened. I'm excited to see that they have a relationship because that was one of the things I was wondering about before DC New dropped. And it will be interesting to see what Snyder does with this. 
I thought it was also interesting to see that Batman and Bullock seem to have an okay relationship. I'm not used to this, maybe just from the Batman animated series. The art I thought was great. We have a full two-page splash on the Batcave and great-looking villains. The only thing that I struggle with is seeing how young Bruce looks. This was the only thing that that didn't really sit well with me. And then, of course, seeing him next to his three quote-unquote sons is just this total disconnect to see like a, a person in his 20s with three, three children, one of which is grown. Everyone's voice, I thought, was spot on, and this is especially true for Bruce. Whether it's Batman or it's Bruce, everything he says is so believable. Heck, you know, even his speech made me have hope for the future of Gotham. I also love Bruce using his tech at the party. I thought it was kind of fun because that sort of thing would really be helpful in those sorts of circumstances when you're just inundated with multiple people and you may not have any idea who it is. And so it was just great that, you know, you could look at someone and identify them and have a good conversation and show them respect by actually knowing their name. So I thought that was fun. Great to see Alfred in physical form. Can't say that enough. Interesting and grisly murder, but I'm happy to say that it is not the most violent that I've seen in these number ones and not the most violent that I've seen in Snyder. So that gives me hope. Batman is true to form with his detective skills. And then, of course, we have the ending where Dick Grayson is basically implicated in this murder. And this both makes me think that this is just an old trick that we always let's make this shocking okay it's going to be a hero so just an old trick that's getting older or it makes me think back to when Bruce told Dick that he played a sociopath well and how how bit of a uh, in the beginning of the issue and how a strange turn that would be if there was something wrong with Dick and then we had to fix it who knows I'm interested to see what happens with the storyline, but I also wonder how the Bat books are going to interact with one another, which is what we kind of got up in that interview, I guess a little incorrectly. But, you know, if Dick is going to be in some Bat doo-doo, then will the implications of that show up in Nightwing? I don't know. But this was the tops, definitely, and I give it 4.5 out of 5 Batarangs. One thing I have to say is I think it would be amazing if there was actually legitimate cohesion between the writers. And I think Scott Snyder and Kyle Higgins would be the perfect team to pull something like that off. So when we get into Nightwing a little bit later, this element might actually have some similarities instead of just some coincidence elements. But I think one thing I would love to see over all of the Batman books is a cohesion where they're all working together. And it's not necessarily a a giant story arc, and it's not necessarily a giant event, just cohesion between the books to say, okay, hey, this happened in this book and this came out the week before because release dates aren't changing because the digital releases and all that, they're sticking to the schedule. They're going to make sure everything comes out on time. You know that this book's coming out the week before, so why not incorporate something that happened the week before in one of the other books into your book? That would be amazing. I think that would be awesome to see. Anyway, with Batman number one over on the website, Dane gave the issue four and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman number one out of six reviews a total of four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue Birds of Prey number one. Good evening, all you gentlemen, mobsters, creeps, and crooks. Men in tights come after you And still you're off the hook For those who scare and terrorize It's the dawn of a brand new day You scum can simply call us The one and only birds of prey 
Okay, Birds of Prey number one, Let Us Pray. Writer Dwayne Swazinski, artist Jesus Saez, colors Ney Rufino. We begin the issue inside a church in Gotham City where a Mr. Keen, not Mr. Clean, is talking to a person unknown and unseen, but who has his scope on Mr. Keen. Mr. Keen is clearly agitated, and we discover that he is some kind of journalist that seems to be attempting to verify the existence of the birds of prey. As a female leaps out of a car toward the church, it seems that Keen will be getting the physical evidence that he has been searching for. The aforementioned car bursts through the side of the church and out steps Starling, looking like someone out of the Roaring Twenties, spotting double holsters and a rad tattoo. A church. It had to be a church. Like I'm not already damned as it is. A line which we see repeated in Supergirl. In a balcony, we see a translucent figure with a gun. This is most likely the man who was speaking to Keen in the beginning. He tells someone, or someones, to kill the driver and maintain positions while he takes out Black Canary. Unfortunately for him, Dinah gets the drop on him. She seems to have the upper hand until someone throws a noose around her head. Looks like there are more than one bad guy. Starwin drags Keen to the church crashing car and takes down some baddies as she goes. In a flashback, Dinah narrates how she first found out about Charlie Keen. He watched her as she entered a hotel to meet none other than Barbara Gordon. What's she doing in this comic? Looks like Dinah is putting together a team and wants Babs to join as Batgirl. Babs doesn't like the look of the team so far with Dinah being an accused murderer and Ev Crawford being on government watch lists. She does give an alternative though, Katana. Back to the present, Dinah gets down from the noose, beats up some baddies, uses her canary cry as a cherry on top, and decides she needs to recruit another her. While she's doing that, Starling is starting the car when Keen backflashes to when he was watching Starling in a diner, and Dinah and Starling lock eyes. That's it. That's all they do. Then he follows her to a bar and wonders who his informant is. Back in the present, Starling speeds towards Dinah, and Dinah plus bad guy leap upon the roof of the car. When she rips off the mask of the bad guy, we discover it is none other than Donovan Morgan Grant, and you can see that he has a film over his lips. He's... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is I. I'm never pinning on me. Oh... He says that he is the one who just killed you right before he kisses a shocked black canary. As all four persons somehow connected to the guard car drive through the other end of the church, we lose the bad guy and Black Canary slips into the car. Keen tells the birds that he has been following them, but they let him know that they were onto him from the beginning. Keen is told that he was being used as a pawn on both sides, but luckily he doesn't carry a grudge. He tells the birds he can use the resources of the Gazette to help them, but Starling lets him know that he will be put on a secret flight out of Gotham. At the airport, Keen hits on Starling and gets shot down. Dinah gets a weird tingling in her brain that only gets worse, and as Keen walks away, he gets a message that makes his eyes and nose bleed right before he explodes. That's the end. Alright, Birds of Prey number one. I don't have a whole lot to say about this issue. I think... It did an okay job of setting things up, but I think there was not as much setting up as I would preferred for an issue number one. It didn't really delve into who Starling is, and I don't, I'm not familiar with the character outside of what I've read in this issue and the little bit of research I did on the character when she was first announced as being in the series. So I don't know a lot, and I don't really know a whole lot out of the first issue. 
everything I know about Black Canary is prior to this issue, so I don't, again, know a lot about Black Canary in this issue either. I think this issue didn't really do a good job of setting things up for the series as far as who the characters are, who the main players are, why they're the main players, why is the team the way they are. They hinted at Black Canary being framed for a murder because she punched somebody and killed them with a one punch. But again, they didn't delve into that. I think the problem is that there's... They referenced a lot of things that have happened in the past, but things that we don't know about because they've never actually been discussed in the past. We're just supposed to be under the assumption that they've already happened, and at some point we're going to find out about them, but we're not finding out about them now. I think for issue one, it wasn't a good issue to set things up. That's first and foremost. I think the art was a lot better than some of the art we've seen in the past incarnations of Birds of Prey. It didn't really, lack of a better word, slut them up as much as they have been slutted up in the past. Including that, I think that I also appreciate the fact that there wasn't nearly as many sexual innuendos as we've, as we've seen in the last couple of years from Birds of Prey. So those are two things that I am glad for. I actually look forward to this team being a covert t- team that's fighting things in secrecy specifically because they're hiding from the law, because that's the roles that they're taking. I think that'd be great, but I need to know more about these characters and need, and more needs to be explained about these characters other than the, the simplest things that they're telling us. But overall, I think it was a good issue. It got its story across. It just didn't set the characters up. So three out of five batterings. Now, overall, I actually kind of like this issue. This is one of those issues that actually does feel like a Birds of Prey comic. He says not reading a lot of Birds of Prey comics, but no, I really, I really, I really enjoyed the issue. I enjoyed the pacing. I thought Black Canary was really cool in this comic book, and it kind of made me want to, you know, follow the series. But I will agree with Dustin that for number one issue, it gives us very little on the main characters. I mean, with these number one issues, especially with this whole Fifty Two relaunch, I think we really have to know not necessarily their origin, but why they're doing what they're doing and what drives them, and. The, the the assumption that, oh, they're just heroes, I think it's just a little too pat for this, like, new era. And if they want to bring in new readers, I think they need to stop with this whole idea of introducing a first issue by just starting off a story and starting off the series. And there's been a lot of that kind of going on where, like, there's there's number ones that have been coming out that they just start a story. You know, oh, this is the beginning of a new story or whatever. No, you need to start the series and establish the characters just as well as the story. I mean, that's what new number one issues used to be like. But going on the issue itself, I really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy Barbara Gordon's appearance here, and not just because I don't enjoy Barbara Gordon as she is right now, but I thought she was written very antagonistically, anti-socially. Just, she was just mean-spirited to, to Dinah. She's like, oh, why are you forming the Birds of Prey? Aren't you wanting to murder? Shouldn't you be clear? Like, aren't you going to help her? Aren't you two friends? I mean, you clearly know each other. Like, common courtesy at least. She's like, she's like looking at her with her, her head tilted and her, eye, and her arms crossed. Did, like, did Diana do something to her that we don't know about? Because otherwise, she's coming down as a real witch, honestly, to, to Black Canary. And I don't, I don't really like it. Um, but besides that, I enjoyed the art a lot. I thought it was very clear, very dynamic, very engaging. And I'm wondering, I'm interested to know what, what happens next. And I actually, I really enjoyed Black Canary most of all. I know I said that before, but to reiterate, like, if nothing else, I'm, I want to follow her in this series and find out what she's up to as the series progresses. Although I still don't think this is a, a bad book. <laughs> but I'll give this a solid three and a half out of five batterings. 
From the moment this book used the line Super Criminal Hotties, I knew it was going to be a struggle to get a high rating from me. But I'm not sure how I feel about this book, because I've come to realise that it's very much in the style of this title to be littered with innuendos and double entendres. So when I read it, I now try not to take those into account, as it's it's just not my style of writing. It's not what... I, I don't enjoy reading that, but if I try and read it for what it is, then this was all right. I mean, I, mean, I don't think it was as in-your-face as Simone's style, so it was better in that regard. And the art was fairly good. I preferred... I preferred Saiz's style in the last arc he did, in the uh, pre-Flashpoint universe, Birds of Prey. As for the story, um, I don't much care for the heroes being perceived as murderers and villains. So I think that's going to lead to some more story development and we'll discover why they are and why that's the case. But I think it does leave the door open for why Poison Ivy is going to become a future member. But... I, I was hoping for more of a special ops book, and hopefully it's going to become that. But as a first issue, I'm going to give it two and a half out of five best rings, but I am quite optimistic for this title. I actually really dug this. I thought it was a pretty cool first issue. I think that because it only had two characters on the team, I think it did something that really, you know, some books like Paul Levitz's Legion of Superheroes really could have taken a cue from. Um, start small, introduce your characters, and grow big. Now, why he didn't use some of that space to give us more info on Starling, not entirely sure. Because to me, that was basically the one place where the book lacked. We 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 found out about Black Canary, we found out about her power, we got a good feel for her voice as the narrator, but we don't really know anything about Starling, except that, you know, she's a criminal, super criminal hottie. I did like the non-linear storytelling, kind of the bouncing around in time frame, mainly because it was also fully captioned that you were told at the beginning of each scene change where you were in relation to the story, uh, as opposed to just, you know, depending on visual cues and the reader to follow things through. I think that saying we're a month ago, or, or rather we're two weeks ago, and then a week ago, and then last night or whatever, I think was was uh, was well done. I like that we have... Now, I've never read Birds of Prey either, so I'm not entirely sure if this has been done before, but my sensation is that this is a different take on the meaning of the name of the book, because as a, as a femme fatale, super criminal team working as good guys, um, Birds of Prey has, has kind of, you know, a, a new meaning for me, at least. Um, the explosion at the end had impact. For me, that was a pun. And, you know, with with him being in the airport and, uh, you know, exploding and the fact that he had no idea it was coming and that it was totally, you know, unprovoked and uh, undesired and everything. I just, I don't know, something about the way that scene played out really, really rang with me. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and give this one a solid four out of five batarangs. I am curious, Dustin, when you said references to past events that we don't know about, I had no clue what you were talking about. They just said that, you know, that she was, she committed murder on somebody by punching them in the face. We don't know anything about that. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, we also don't know anything about why her and Starling are actually together. 
you know, they, they, you know, Barbara Gordon showed up, but they didn't really reference anything related to them being teamed up in the past, things like that. Or how she's walking again. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure they ever were teamed up in the past. I think that that's something I asked, um, one of the editors who's on, I have on Twitter, I asked her about it. She said, read and find out. But my impression is that this is the first Birds of Prey team. And that Black Canary and Batgirl oh. know each other from Silver, you know, from, from previous adventures. But there has been no Birds of Prey team before this. So, you know, like most team books, the characters are really the thing that, that draws you in. And, and they have to work in order for the team to actually work. And, you know, you c- become invested in the, in the characters first and then the team. So that's what I was, I was most interested in. How am I going to like these characters? And again, we're only interested or introduced to two of them. So this is kind of like Justice League. I'm not sh- necessarily sure how I like being introduced to a small number in this sense just because birds i was like okay we're going to just be thrown this team and we'll find out how they're formed but that's not necessarily how it began so i'm right off the bat most invested in black canary but right now i'm i'm not so sure what to make of her you know she says she's accused of murder which made me wonder if this had something to do with the first arc of birds of prey volume two but then when i looked at that she actually mentions that there um in in her early career that she had to deal with some false accusations of murder so whether or not this is the same murder and Dinah right now is a rookie is anyone's guess but because she does say some things about this is uh you know kind of i'm throwing a team together as if it's the first time i almost think that it is kind of early in her career starling while i like her costume i'm not really enjoying the character off the bat her dialogue is trying too hard to be smart and sarcastic. And then, of course, that quote, who does a, you know what, have to cut to get some service around here? Really? Then all of her quotes about the church, I don't know, everything that comes out of her mouth really makes me just want to hit her. And what is her story besides being on the government list? I certainly agree. I agree with Dustin that we learn too little about these characters, and this is really a character-driven book. So, of the two characters given us, we learn next to nothing, and really can't become a attached to them sure you can say it's the first issue but you know i felt my heart being pulled towards seth in the beginning and even with this new supergirl gosh i feel bad referencing this so much you know i'm generally already interested and invested in the character i have a feeling that this is going to be like a team with girls who don't have queen pasts just because it seems like of the two we know right now, they both have some trouble with the law. And I don't really want this to be like a Suicide Squad or a Gotham City Sirens. I want the birds of prey to be heroes. That's that's what I want it to be about. I'm also actually scared that Straczynski is going to take Simone's hints and make Dinah bisexual and have Starling and her have a relationship because I felt like there were some steps towards that here maybe i'm just looking into that i don't know maybe i'm just overly nervous but the like the club scene and then some of the things that starling says i don't know but i will lose my mind and walk to a bridge it's weird (laughs) having dinah be more than field leader that she's actually going to be the leader the creator of the birds and it makes oracle's absence that more painful the birds were definitely Oracle's baby, so to see Dinah take complete ownership of it really makes me uncomfortable. And then, of course, speaking of Babs, what a random entrance that has absolutely nothing to do with her character. It doesn't help us understand her character anymore or her relationship with Dinah. And if anything, it tells me that Dinah and Babs are not going to be close because Babs's reactions, like Donovan said, I mean, they were kind of harsh. And then, obviously, 
Babs was just clearly judging Dinah and, and her shady past. So that was kind of sad. But this was a much better issue than I expected. You know, I've decided that coming into all these DC new issues, if I think they're going to be awful, then I'm not disappointed. And I'm normally really surprised because they're better. So I came in thinking this was going to be awful, but I thought it did much better than I originally thought. It didn't really feel like a number one to me, just the beginning of a story arc. So that may be troublesome for some new readers. And since I have some familiar familiarity with the character, I can tell that Dinah is being brought back to near the beginning of her career. But a new reader wouldn't know that. Couldn't this issue have been like the, the JLA that started in 2005 where the League members were analyzed and then carefully chosen? I think that would have been a good way to do it. But we start out with two members out of five, I guess, and, and we don't really know why Dinah chose Ebb. So I guess we'll, we'll see in the future. 3.5 out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Birds of Prey out of five reviews, an average of three and a half out of five bad ranks. Let's move into our next issue, Catwoman number one. Met him last week at a superhero dance. He said, I can see myself in your pants. Thought he'd have a better line than this, but you can't say no to Batman, so I gave him a Next thing I know, we were at his lair. He had a high-tech record player. We listened to Modern Lovers that night. I'm dating Batman and it feels right. Okay, Joe, you need to cue up the sexy music from Stella from a couple weeks back. <laughs> that, that should be running underneath here. Not, I'm kidding. Yeah. Okay, Catwoman number one. Let's bring on the controversy. We have the title and most of the costumes stay on by Judd Winnick, writer, Gillum, March artist, and cover. So we open with a half-naked woman pulling on her black leather cat suit as her apartment is being rampaged by really muscular men with skull masks and guns. The mysterious woman who we can only identify by her breasts so far she does not know who these men are so she's just making a run for it with her kitties and her phone and whenever she gets out of the apartment we finally see her face as she turns to see that the apartment is being blown up behind her and poor little kitty on her neck is rather scared so Catwoman the star of the show goes off to run into her friend named Lola Loa's an ex-showgirl who is also an actual friend of Selena's, a fence and a great intel man. Lola gives her tips on a place to stay. There's a hotel room that, that needs filling and also gives her a lead on where she might be able to find a job as in a heist, as in a way to steal stuff and get money from it. So there's a bonding moment between those two as they, you know, be friends and girls. So Catwoman puts on her Kate Kane costume with the red hair and the pale white skin and she goes to a bar. It's a, it's a girly bar. There, there's lots of sexiness going on. And it's basically, it's a hangout for the Russian mob. And they make it a point that all the girls they bring in don't know Russian, but of course Catwoman does know Russian because she's the awesome Catwoman. So she listens in and finally finds out some information about a very cool painting that she might be able to steal and get a really good price for. So as she's deciding that she's going to go for that, she suddenly spies Renald. Renald is a guy who evidently really uh, slapped around and then shot one of Selena's friends when Selena was much younger and wearing fishnets on her wrists. 
and you know arms and everything else so this is not somebody that she likes he is supposed to be locked up when he goes to the john she follows him in she seduces them to get close to him and then slams his face into the sink counter cracking whatever you know hard stone-like substance the counter is made out of there's a lot of blood as she then goes to town on his face slashing and clawing not entirely sure if she kills the guy but she really really messes him up if she doesn't kill him and at that point she realizes that she's running out of time the person she has sent the mickey to take her place is waking up so she gets really really quickly suited up in black leather and gets out of dodge as quickly as possible she bolts back to the hotel room and while she's there licking her wounds batman shows up i heard that your apartment was firebomb are you all right catwoman sees him what have you gotten yourself into this as catwoman shoves her tongue down his throat and basically Make it a sexy time with the Batman. The end. All right, Catwoman number one. <laughs> now, I know that there's going to be some... This is probably going to be the low point for a lot of people. I'm going to start off by saying that I don't think that the perception that everyone is going to... or The, the idea of Catwoman and Batman having sex is really that far-fetched. And I'm going to probably surprise a lot of people and say... I didn't actually mind this issue. The interesting thing about this is that this comic gave us exactly what it said it was going to give us. It said that it was going to be sex, 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 sex. And not only did they give us the the sexy Catwoman and the half-naked women and the, the girly club with prostitutes galore and all that, but then, you know, they, they leave the issue hanging with Catwoman and Batman having sex. You know, as much as we all would love to probably believe that Batman is not the type of person to be doing stuff like this, I think Catwoman would be the exact person he would do something like this with. And that may come as a surprise to some people, but the moral ambiguity of the character is the reason of why Bruce is so attracted to Selina. We've seen this in the past. It's not like it's a surprise. The one, the thing that is sort of a surprise is the fact that Catwoman says, well, he plays hard to get and he resists at first, but then he, then he's okay with it. Yeah, well, that's the problem. The thing is, we're not hearing that from Batman's mind. We're hearing that from her mind. So he could be doing that front because that's, that's the game that they play. Who knows? That's what he does. The, the interesting thing is this also has a nice little reference to, in, or to in Detective Comics when Alfred mentioned, oh, well, you've got that thing going on with, uh, you know, Selena. Or you've got that thing going on with person who's cat-like or whatever he said in Detective Comics. I can't remember exactly what he said. But clearly this is what they're referencing. The fact that Batman has this, like, just random, I'm going to hook up with Catwoman whenever I need to. You know, it's it's not that big of a surprise to me that Batman's got needs and he needs to fulfill them. It's not. Um, I think the art by Gilliam March is, is showcasing exactly what Gilliam March is known for and good at, which is drawing... Half naked women. Um, I, I think the story doesn't really do a whole lot for the character. It does introduce some aspects of the character. Um, it is interesting to note that clearly Selena no longer knows Batman's identity, which means the entire events that happened during the Hush storyline 
in the early 2000s clearly either didn't happen or maybe Hush doesn't exist at all. Who knows? Um, although I, I could see that char- character being completely relaunched from the get-go since his uh, face was shaved off the last time we saw him. But that aside, um, knowing that Selena doesn't know Bruce's identity is kind of interesting. But again, it's not, to me, again, it's not that big of a deal. It hasn't been that long that she's known her identity, his, his identity in the first place. So it's not really that crazy that she suddenly doesn't know it, especially since almost the entire run of Gotham City Sirens had to do with her being upset with the fact that her partners were trying to find out the identity of Bruce Wayne and she didn't, and it was kind of like this thing that she had that everybody wanted, but she didn't want to give up. And I, it's kind of, it relieves some stress off her back and also relieves that, that, that story element that's been played over numerous times with Catwoman over the past few years that I don't want to see again. So I'm glad that she doesn't know his identity. I'm sure that Bruce knows her identity. I'm pretty sure he knows probably everything there is to know about her, especially since, I mean, for God's sake, she, he knows that her apartment was bombed and I'm sure she didn't put on the lease that she was renting as Catwoman. So doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Um, so yeah, I don't think it was a horrible issue, but again, it definitely had its ups and downs, but it's exactly what it said it was going to give us. It's not something, I'm not looking at this from the perspective of someone who's completely familiar with Catwoman. I, you know, we did this in the last episode. You have to look at these issues from the perspective of a fresh take. Can't take everything that the, the, that the character has had in the past and say, this is how it has to be. They said they were going to give us a sexy character who likes to do thing, likes to do bad things. That's what they gave her. Two and a half out of five battlings. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, in the past couple of months, Judd Winnick has certainly advertised this book as violence and sex, violence and sex, violence and sex. And you know what? This, he's right. And Dustin's right. This story delivered. This story absolutely delivered. And what we got was lots of violence and sex. I mean, we got so much sex in this issue, I'm going to get myself tested tomorrow. So we start off with several shots of Catwoman in her underwear. And she's not even out of her underwear. She's, she's, she's still half, uh, halfway out of her clothes, jumping out in the title sequence with the title and most of the costumes stay on. We find out she has a new friend named Lola, who was a showgirl, and and Selena saying, "No bull, really a showgirl." We cut to a Russian rave party where there's a lot of like like debauchery going on, which is as you do with Gotham City. There's always debauchery going on. We see Selena trying to seduce this guy for the for the sake of beating the crap out of him, while she hops over the chloroformed girl in the middle of the the drug drug dealer induced Russian rave party. And we see her and Batman get laid at the end, at the end of the issue. Now, I thought the art was excellent. I thought the writing was abysmal. And here's why. And it's not because this has nothing to do with, it has a little bit to do with Selena's characterization. I think Selena's written a little too sleazily here. And that's not to say that she wouldn't be doing these things. I just think her voice was off. Like when she says, Oh, my name, my, my friend's name is Lola. She was a showgirl. No bull, really, a showgirl. I don't think Selena talks like that. But the larger issue I have with this is the is the ending scene. And before people throw popcorn at me and saying that like I'm just mad because 
there's sex in, in a comic book. That's not it at all. That has nothing to do with that. In fact, I think that Selena is actually pretty in character here in this final scene. I have, a, I have a humongous problem with Batman doing this because when we're given the information that they don't even know each other, who the other is, and maybe Batman does, even still, with the dialogue or the inner, inner monologue captions of Catwoman saying that every time uh, we usually do, the, every time we do this, he protests, but then he gives in, and then he seems angry. I have a humongous problem with that because you're basically going along with the idea from what I, from what I'm gathering that Batman goes to stop this cat burger every time and ends up having sex with her and then leaves. And that's a stupid, that's a horrible idea. That, that's, I can't believe DC thought that was okay, cool. Run with it. John. Like I, that is so bad. And it's just like, what's this? I've said this before to other people. What's to stop him from like, nailing poison ivy or any of the other people who try to seduce him because essentially they don't know anything about each other and people like to say that this is going along the batman and catwoman relationship when in the past the relationship was set upon sexual tension that's the point of sexual tension the fact that they aren't actually having sex and again they've had sex before but this isn't really the relationship it's a new take on the relationship and i really don't like it because it demeans batman more than anything it makes him seem to be a really impulsive weak-willed, lackadaisical, easily manipulated, easily taken advantage of individual. And frankly, I think the, the scene at the end, even though the art is good, I think the scene is frankly disgusting because there's, there's just too much, there's just too much implication being going on in the imagery, especially that last page with Batman's pants, the Batman's pants sliding off. I, there's so many things I have to say about this issue that, I really think are wrong. I have, I have a genuine problem with how this is being depicted because I think that characterization is being thrown out of the window for the sake of sex. And I think that's a horrible way to write a story. So I have a lot of things I could say about this, but this is a family podcast. So instead of just saying this comic book, I'll just give it zero out of five better rings. I see what Gillian March was trying to achieve with this comic, but there are magazines you can get for that sort of thing. So renders the whole thing a little bit pointless. Because, to be honest, the most pressing question I have is, how could Batman do this to the poor and lovely, innocent Charlotte Rivers? But, uh, you know, just cheat on her with this temptress. And like Don said, I completely agree. This makes him sound impulsive. It makes him sound sort of like a real pushover, just needy, desperate... And I think Batman Batman is strong-willed. That's part of the core element of the character. He can say no things. He he can train his body to perfection and stuff like that. And you know, I, I don't see why he just instantly fall apart when Catwoman starts coming onto him. Aside from that, for the actual issue, I've never really been a big fan of March's art, especially the cats. They actually really freaked me out. I think it's the way they kept staring at me. <laughs> and I mean, to be honest, as I read this, I was thinking to myself, it's actually not too bad until I got to the last four pages where I thought it all went a bit too far. But like everyone was saying, I mean, this is what we were promised. It's just not something that I particularly want to read. But I'll give this two out of five batterings. Yeah, okay. It's a sexy book. It is. And Catwoman 
you know, one of her other ongoings was was done by Jim Balin, who went on to do Tara, Witch of the Black Rose. So it's not like we haven't seen sexy art in Catwoman before. <clears throat> Setting aside the last scene for a moment, since that's kind of its own thing, I, I really dug the story. I, I thought that I, I liked her voice. I liked, you know, the visuals with, with you know, if, if that's what they're going to do, if they want to have a sexy, violent book, guess what? I'm a fan of sexy, violent stories. You know, True Blood is one of my favorite shows on TV. Uh, Digging Game of Thrones, Rome, uh, Battlestar Galactica, all that stuff. This is we live in a world now where though that sort of storytelling is very common, has a very wide appeal of both genders, and so the fact that there's a comic book that goes for that tone in 2011 does not surprise me at all. There are two major criticisms that I've seen weighed against this book, and I just want to kind of address my thoughts on them. The first is that this is not empowering women. That if DC wants to have a wide line of new reader-friendly books that has, you know, a mixed cast of characters across the board, I think that they've done that. I think they have a nice variety of genres, and I think that you know, this particular genre is, per- is, is, is perfectly acceptable. Men of War is not aimed at pacifists, and yet there are pacifists who like to read comics. And I don't think that this is one title whenever they said, let's do a, a, a female-friendly or female-empowering book. I don't think this is necessarily what the one they were thinking of. So maybe that's just makes it a book that some people don't want to read. I had fun with it. Now, as far as the last scene goes, we have this entire thing, like Dustin said, from Catwoman's perspective. We don't know what Batman thinks. I think to presume that he goes to catch a cat burglar and has sex with her instead is going beyond what we've seen and adding a lot to, to you know, what's actually in the storytelling here. Um, I can't say anything about what this means for Batman until we see his side of things. And since our teaser box is next issue the morning after, I think that we're going to get some of that next issue, if only through his speech. Because I, I, I have no way of knowing this, but I have the feeling that this, this book is always going to be a narrator from inside Catwoman's head. I don't think we're going to get thought balloons from Batman on this. But I, I am very, very curious to see where this goes. I did like that it, it kind of expounded upon the Catwoman reference in Detective Comics. It's possible that his relationship with Charlotte is over by this point because Detective Comics is set several weeks before Suicide Squad, which came out the same week as Catwoman. It's possible there's a big gap of time between this and that. I don't know that it really matters, though, because obviously, like Alfred said, if he's going to be dating other women, he does need to shed the cat. And he obviously hasn't at this point. So I dug it. I thought it was fun. I don't mind the sex. I'm actually kind of a fan of sex and violence. So I'm going to give this one uh, three out of three and a half out of five. Well, you heard it here first. I'm actually going to start a new podcast with Donovan called The Claws on My Back, the Catwoman podcast. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pumped about that. Uh, well, you know, when it takes three pages to actually see a character's face and all you even see are scantily clad limbs and cats being shoved into a box, you know that this is going to be a doozy. And, of course, the title, you know, the clothes mostly stay on. I'm not even sure what the point of this issue was. You know, you see Selena's apartment blown up, so I almost thought, oh, maybe Winnick is really going with the tabula rasa here. 
so he's going to start fresh. Uh, but then we have a best friend, ex-showgirl Lola, who's a far cry from Maven from Batman, the animated series. We have Selena being a secret agent, kind of, and it's almost cool until she has a Barbara Gordon moment, flashes back to a distressing time. But unlike Barbara Gordon, she actually goes ape you-know-what on the guy in the bathroom. And then, of course, first pretend she's going to be offering some pleasure. And, you know, that's the main problem with this book. It's sexy. And, yes, we were promised it, but I thought maybe it would just be like, her swinging through the towns, and maybe she would go over lasers and look sexy while going over lasers, but this is not what I thought I was going to get myself into. I guess I'm naive. Unlike Batwoman, I thought it was kind of gratuitous. It's just too much. She can't swing out of the bar without going over a couple with the woman's legs spread apart and her crotch pointed towards us. Really? Do I need to see that? Selena is basically in all forms of undress throughout the issue. And then we have the ending. Now, I like me some Batman-Catwoman shipping, and uh, it's not surprising to see Catwoman try to kiss Batman, but that is where it should have stopped. And then there's the full-on bat sex that leaves nothing to the imagination. At least there are other comics that skip all that, but I mean, if you turn to page 20, friends, okay, shift the pages now, there is a phallic bat ear pointed in exactly the right spot, I'm telling you. When you see it, you will never unsee it, my friend. Yeah, it's true. Frankly, I just wonder how she got his utility belt off in the first place. Aren't there mechanisms that shock and kill people when they try that? And this is where we end. You know, nothing really happens in this issue, though there were at least two potential storylines to run with. Catwoman can be a really great character, but I totally lost all respect for her right here. Is sexy really all this book is going to be because it is dead weight and needs to be dropped? Sexy for sexy's sake is worthless. I hope, you know, the book gets a clue or potentially a new writer. I agree with Don on this one. Zero out of five batterings. All right. So out of five reviews, that is going to give Catwoman number one. Two out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, which is Nightwing number one, written by Kyle Higgins, art by Eddie Barrows. You've trained me well, Batman, but from now on, I make my own decisions, call my own shots, and my new name is... Nightwing. Hey! Actually, that's not bad. Thanks. So we start off with Dick Grayson assuming the mantle of Nightwing with not a moment to spare. He's already patrolling the streets of Gotham, taking out a criminal who we've never actually seen before, but he's got his trusty Escrima sticks to help him just as he did before. The only difference between this Nightwing and the previous Nightwing seems to be the color red instead of the color blue, but that's not that big of a deal. We find out that Haley's Circus is back in town and Dick decides that he, this is the first time that that uh, it's been back to Gotham City since his parents were killed in Gotham City by Tony Zuko. We then cut to a scene where we see a gentleman getting off a bus that has just arrived. The Port Authority in Gotham, he is getting stuck up by two thugs who say he's wearing nice sunglasses. The guy quickly makes quick use of these guys by beating the living crap out of them and walks off as he says, I always did like the city. We then cut to Dick Grayson in his new loft, and clearly he's not concerned about privacy because he has his uh, Nightwing suit just strewn out on the floor with the windows wide open. We then cut to him going off to Haley Circus to meet some of his old friends, 
and he runs into one of the newer acrobats, well, two of the newer acrobats, one of them he's familiar with, which is, her name is Raya, and another one whose name is Mark, who you automatically feel some kind of tension between the two characters as Mark feels like he's already having to compete against Dick Grayson for Raya's attention. They suggest that he gets back up on the acrobat bars, which he does, and even though he has all the talent in the world, he makes sure to fall just to show that he hasn't he, he's not as good as he once was. We then catch Dick Grayson leaving and going home, passing a bunch of random street crime and prostitutes and homeless people, so clearly he's not on the best side of town. When he's attacked by some new villain that we've never actually seen before, who has a pair of wolverine claws on each hand, and quickly takes out some cops and makes his target known to be none other than Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson has a moment to change into his Nightwing costume, and again, this new character states to Nightwing, I'm not sure why you're defending Grayson. Grayson isn't innocent. He is a, he's a murderer, and we're gonna take, we're gonna take care of that. The end of the issue has this new villain standing over Nightwing, looking like he's going to impale him with his Wolverine-like claws. That is Nightwing number one. Nightwing number one, I thought this was actually a pretty decent issue. It obviously jumps right into it. It doesn't really dwell on the fact that it's it's been some, you know, whatever the transition point in time where Dick became Batman was, they didn't really dwell on that, which they didn't necessarily have to dwell on it either, because Kyle Higgins did a great job of just hitting the ground running and not only introducing the character, but intertwining some of the past things with Dick Grayson, like Haley Circus which we know we'll see in future issues as well, but also intertwining some of the other history that Dick Grayson has really dealt with. The one thing that is really interesting to, worth to mention is what we talked about earlier when we talked about Batman number one, how there could be some kind of plot element actually combining or kind of connecting the two, two series together with Dick Grayson being evidence appearing as for Dick Grayson being the murderer in Batman number one, and also this villain coming after Dick Grayson in this issue, saying that he's also not innocent. So that should be interesting to see how that actually plays out. I thought the art was pretty good. I don't, I don't have anything negative to say about it, but at the same time, I think it was just very, just generic art, very typical. I do have to mention, I do find it interesting. Well, there's a couple things I find interesting. One, I really wanted to explain why he suddenly had, wears the red color instead of blue. I do want that explained at some point, because I don't want it just to be, oh, someone editorial decided they wanted red instead of blue, so because of that, <laughs> that's how it happened, which probably is the case, but it'd be nice if they actually worked that into the actual story of why he's wearing red instead of blue, and why that is the change. Also... Why did, how did his hair suddenly grow in these few, few weeks between the time he was Batman and now he's back as Nightwing? How did his hair grow to almost be pre-Battle for the Cowl length? I'm just wondering that. Because his hair wasn't that long the entire time he was Batman. So that's another thing that I'm sure will never actually be addressed. But I just find it interesting how he suddenly becomes Nightwing and resorts back to his previous Nightwing haircut. Besides that, I thought it was a pretty good issue. I'm definitely looking forward to the some of the plot elements that are going to be pulled out of Haley's Circus. 
and as well as to see what actually happens and if and how it sh- it will be connected to Batman number or the the main Batman series by Scott Snyder. So with this issue, I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. Real quick comment about the hair. I mean, I think Dick Grayson's hair hair length ever since being Nightwing in the modern age has kind of been inconsistent. So I don't think that's a necessarily a story point, but um. I really enjoyed this, and I've been reading a lot of old Nightwing comics, coincidentally, and this felt like it was right at home. The one thing I would say that I wish there was more of was I wish it was a little more inclusive with other people. I wish we saw a little more, I wish we saw maybe appearance of Batman here or there or whatever, because it it kind of seems like, like it's a little bit of a departure from Dick Grayson's. It's very new, but I think even as a Nightwing title, it feels very kind of solitary, like he's completely separated from everything even though he's in Gotham City. But other than that, I really, really dug this. I love the art. I always loved Eddie Barrows, and I hope that he's not leaving the title for long once McCarthy comes in at four. I like the new costume. I like the fact that it's, it's a blue mask and a dark blue costume on a, on a red emblem. It's a little Chris O'Donnell, but I, I genuinely like the new costume. I think it looks good. Maybe it's just because Eddie Barrows draws it well. And but I will say, though, I really wish that they explained... Or maybe they'll, you'll get to explain it, but I would like to know why he's Nightwing again. I mean, because he and Bruce were both Batman around one time, and I just don't want it to be that. Because he was going to become Nightwing immediately after Bruce came back, and then Bruce says, well, no, I still have need of you. So I just want to know, like, what? Did he decide to become Nightwing on his own anyway? I just I would like that to be explained. It doesn't have to be a one whole issue, just a line of dialogue. But other than that, I enjoy what was going on. I'm, Kyle Hickens knows how to write Dick Grayson perfectly. And I'm generally intrigued to see what's going on, especially after Batman number one. So I'll give this four and a half out of five batterings. I really enjoyed this as well. A lot more than I was expecting to. Not that I thought it was going to be bad. I, just, I thought this was a really good issue. I really enjoyed it. And from just thinking it was just going to be okay. I, I don't mind that Batman wasn't in it. I think that it's good to create Dick Grayson is his own character, especially for new readers. I wish there was a bit more transition from the the old DC to the new one, explaining how he was Batman and why he isn't now. But at the same time, I do like how we just hit the ground running. I'm interested to see if it's, I, I mentioned earlier, if it's actually tied in with Batman or if it's just a coincidence. I enjoyed the the character the character work I think he's written really well and as Don was saying if he is written just like some some of the old Nightwing then I'm definitely going to go back and try and find some good back issues which I suppose is one of the aims of this DC New because I'm not that familiar with Nightwing as a character but I'm really enjoying this so far and I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future so I'm going to give this four out of five batterings Nightwing I thought was a decently engaging book it's it's one that I went into actually really curious to see what we we're going to find out about Dick's history. And we found a couple of little tidbits of how it relates to Batman, but not a whole lot. Really, the one thing I took away from this that has me interested in it more than anything else is how it might connect to the Batman plot. When I read it, I read it before Batman, and, you know, the guy calls him, you know, the worst killer Gotham's ever seen. And as for, you know, crazy people are crazy, and he's just, you know, talking smack. But then we get to the Batman issue, and Nightwing is again identified as a killer. And so I really am hoping that these two plots connect. 
I don't really have a whole lot to say about the story beyond that. The the bad guy that he fights, the nameless Spider-Man Wolverine Doc Hen person, you know, he can kill you. Beyond that, he didn't really uh, have an effect on me. And so I it was enough to make me want to read more, but it wasn't a whole lot beyond that. So I want to give it three and a half out of five batterings. Okay, it's nice to see Dick back in this role, but I agree with Don that it'd be nice to see how, how that actually happens. And I think this issue really does feel like a number one because it has some ties to the past, but you don't feel bogged down in it, which is great. I like seeing Nightwing having fun again, feeling like himself and even saying, you know, I'm me again, talking about his relationship to the city and even living in a seedy part of town, which I thought was a, a creative writing point where he feels he can do the most good rather than, you know, in a penthouse in a, in a great part of town. It's nice to see the emotion that Dick feels when thinking about the circus. And then when he finally goes to the circus, I thought it was a little weird that Dick takes a spill all up Peter Parker. So, you know, people don't think, oh, no, he must be Nightwing. I mean, can't you tell that he's are obviously still in shape and, you know, circus people, how would they not know that he's going to some sort of gymnastics gym and, and keeping up with it? I just thought that was strange. Well, at the circus, of course, we said some shipping could happen with Raya, but then we have Mark. And, you know, I feel like we can already call Mark as being the bad guy, especially because he goes straight after Dick and then, you know, you have all the acrobatics. Uh, but then, you know, what is that that random guy that walks off the bus and instantaneously starts twisting necks. Who knows? I thought it was an okay issue. We see Dick getting back into the Nightwing role, which should definitely be the main purpose, but I wonder how many side stories are really necessary because I feel like there were maybe three going on. The art's okay, but I thought the splash pages didn't really have as tight a feel as the ones in Batwoman. No pun intended. They're just not laid out as nicely, and the earlier ones are sometimes confusing with all the action with the subway. I give this three 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so out of 5 reviews, that is going to give Nightwing number 1 4 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last issue, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 1. Tell me, what bothers you more? That your greatest failure has returned from the grave? Or that I've become a better Batman than you? You're ruling through intimidation and murder. You're just another criminal. I'm what this city needs. Okay. This one is entitled I Fought the Law and Kicked Its Butt. It is written by Scott Lebdell, who is also doing Superboy and Teen Titans. Art and cover by Kenneth Roccafort. We open up with Roy Harper in jail in Kirak, which is a fictitious Middle Eastern nation. He came over here to overthrow a brutal dictator because Kirak always has brutal dictators. But he got thrown in jail. There was a rather husky white American priest-type person who comes to talk to him, but whenever they go to pray over the Bible, it's actually a book full of weapons. Turns out that the overweight priesty guy is actually Jason Todd the Red Hood in disguise, which was, I thought, kind of a cool reveal. He busts Roy Harper out of the uh, prison. They ride off in a Jeep. And then Starfire shows up kind of out of nowhere in a big flaming half-naked glory. And she basically roasts all the bad guys who are still pursuing Jason and Roy. We then skip to three weeks later on the island paradise of Saint-Martinique. And... 
An even less clothed Starfire comes out of the water, throws her really extremely long red hair around. We get a little bit of internal monologue from her where we find out that she can barely tell humans apart. She only sticks around with the boys because they make her laugh. We get some really clumsy dialogue trying to give us background to the relationships with Dick Grayson and uh, and Starfire, and now Jason's you know with Starfire, and it's actually kind of handled poorly. A uh, mysterious, shadowy woman shows up. Jason goes off and talks to her. No one else can see her. Roy thinks that Jason is off talking by herself. But we find out that some really important people in Jason's past have been killed. It's a little bit unclear. Jason goes off and to, well, before Jason goes anywhere, Roy and Starfire go off and, uh, again, make it a sexy time. And then uh, Jason, you know, goes off and basically wants to find out the important people in his past who are dead. He wants to find out what happened when he gets there. A whole bunch of people come out of the woodwork and pull weapons on him. And the reason I'm being kind of vague on the last half is because I'm not entirely sure I follow the last half of this book. But at the bottom it says to be explained instead of to be continued. So I guess I'll know more in a month. All right. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number one. Interesting, nonetheless. Uh, I did not expect very much from the series. I kind of pegged this as the new outsiders of the Batman universe, specifically because, as we, as most of you who have been listening to this podcast for a, an extended amount of time know that for a while we were reviewing the outsiders, specifically when it was Batman and the outsiders, and then at some point it decided to turn into just the outsiders, and it labeled itself as a new covert team for Batman. And that lasted about, I think, four or five issues, and then it just completely turned into someone deciding, I just want to write an outsider story that has nothing to do with Batman. Or the fact that Batman's request was to have this team be a covert, undercover team, and that's what happened. That being said, we decided to stop reviewing the series because it just became nothing related to Batman. I pegged this book as that because other than Jason Todd being in the series and Jason Todd being the character that's leading this team of so-called outlaws, it really is not going to have probably a whole lot to do with Batman. There will be small references here and there to Jason Todd's past relationship with Batman and the Bat family, but for the most part, this character is out on his own. That's the whole point of the character. The character is successful out on his own, and quite honestly, I don't think that he would not be able, or he would be able to be out in Gotham City running around amok, and Batman would allow that. I'm almost positive that would not be happening. So, to get this series, it's almost as if we took all of the more vigilante, extreme vigilantes of the DC Universe and pegged them all together. I don't know a lot about Starfire. I'm fairly familiar with Roy Harper, because I also follow Green Arrow comics, which a lot of people probably don't even know that, but I do follow Green Arrow, so I'm very accustomed to Roy Harper and his backstory, and quite honestly, I think Roy Harper and Jason Todd are probably the perfect connection and perfect team team up. I don't know how Starfire really fits into it, because I'm not as familiar with her. I know her her her, her links to Dick Grayson in the Teen Titans and things like that, but Beyond the like the overall Starfire, I'm not as familiar with as I am with Roy Harper. I I would be interested to know if there's going to be other characters that are added to the mix later on, or if it's just going to be these three and that's 
the whole idea of Jason Todd breaking Roy Harper out of jail. Although, what I have known about Starfire, I didn't think that she was as murderous as she was in this issue. Also, clearly, her personality and her, I guess, sexual drive is, is, is in overdrive in one way, I guess is one way to put it, as, uh, she clearly just wants to have sex a lot. And I guess two guys who are probably in their Given that they're saying Dick Grayson's 21, Jason Todd's probably one or two or you know, a couple years younger, so he's probably like 17, 18, 19, somewhere in that range. If that's the case, you know, I guess that's the perfect age range for people to really just say, well, I don't care if that guy's doing this person, I'm going to do that person too. But hey, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a group of people who are supposed to be not really caring about a whole lot of anything. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in this book. I don't know anything that's going on. The only thing I know that's going on is that Starfire killed a bunch of people in tanks so that Roy and Jason could get away. They they came to an island. The On the island, Starfire is dressed in almost next to nothing out in public in front of other people. And at the same time, she says that she wants to have sex with Roy after she's she states that she's already had sex with Jason. And Roy's okay with that. That's all I got out of this book. I don't know anything else that's going on. There's a character named Essence, which I don't know anything about. Seems like an interesting character, but again, I don't know anything about the character. <laughs> it falls back into line with what happened in Birds of Prey. I don't know anything about the character. And quite honestly, because I don't know anything doesn't mean I should have to go do research to find out who this character is, because that's not the point of the New 52. No clue what's going on, but... I thought the art was actually pretty good. Uh, you know, even though Starfire is half naked, well, that's the way she's supposed to be portrayed. I thought I enjoyed the art style, and it's it's different than some of the other art styles I've, I've seen. It's very it's it seems very messy in the beginning, especially with the the very first page with Roy Harper in prison. But for the most part, I really enjoyed this art style, and I could get used to it if it was in something that I actually understood the writing. So the art is the only thing that really saves this book, but I can't give it any more than one and a half out of five batterings. Oh, man. Okay, well, first of all, no, there is no first of all. I, I, I agree with that. I don't, I don't know what's going on in this book either, really. I mean, really, the only pe- thing people have been talking about is Starfire because that's the only thing that they know what to talk about. I mean, Roy Harper gets busted out by Jason Todd and joins him in Starfire. Jason gets told of people who are being killed that that he knows, but we don't call the untitled. And the issue ends with to be explained. I think that's a pretty crappy uh, <laughs> story for a first issue of a series to be explained. That's that's what the series is about. That's what the first issue should be about. Um, and I don't really care about what else is going on too, because to be honest, like the largest largest talking point is. And honestly, like in all honesty, I don't because I don't know what's going on. That's all I can talk about. So. I know people will probably want to be listening to this thing, think I'm this very puritanical West Westboro Baptist Church esque Christian style prude who's doesn't like sexuality or whatever, which isn't that's not the case at all. Honestly, that's not. I don't mind sex. I don't mind pe- women having sex. I don't mind any of that in uh comic book entertainment. But there are ways to portray it. And I think that with this this is sort of like a, a an addendum to the Catwoman review. I think that there's a very, very sleazy mindset with DC right now to where we've been talking about how it's been very violent lately. The portrayal of the women in this in these comics, I feel, is getting out of hand. And I think that 
people are going to be reading these comics and, and some will say, well, I don't see what the biggest deal is. What's wrong with Starfire wanting to have sex? There's nothing wrong with Starfire wanting to have sex. But the way it's portrayed and in the context it's portrayed, it comes off as very, very pointless. And all we know about Starfire is that she used to be a prisoner and she she doesn't have doesn't um care about anything uh she doesn't care about she doesn't have any emotions in the act of sex. She just wants to have sex. And people do that. But when you first of all, when you compare it to the character that was that had come before, and I am a little bit familiar with Teen Titans, so the character of Starfire was always about expressing emotions and being true to herself. That's why she was very scantily clad, because she wasn't ashamed of her body. But at the same time, she was all about emotions. That's how her powers worked. She used them through through uh, expression of her emotions. And when you when you bring that now to like, oh, um, all you need to know about having sex with me is that there's no, nothing to do with love. And they couple that with the fact that she apparently has a short-term memory where she doesn't remember her family, where she doesn't remember her friends in the Teen Titans. And she can't tell one human from another. I think that illustrates a very, very, very horrible mindset that the comic book writers have with women these days. Because really, what does that say to you? What What is the point of this character in this in this in this title now? Especially the fact that like Jason Todd is like several years younger than her, but is basically calling the shocks like a jock. And I don't, I'm not even sure why Roy Harper is subservient to him because Roy Harper apparently was still at least speedy, if not Red Arrow. So the history is still here. It's just that the characters don't remember it anymore. And I, I basically see this as a very, very pathetically written book because it's basically sold on the idea that, oh yeah, Starfire is all about the sex because that was always her character, right? Right? Wrong. Because you're codifying it to a very, very male chauvinistic sexist, uh, portrayal. And I didn't like it. So one out of five batarangs because it wasn't Batman having sex. <laughs> I was interested in this comic because I thought the premise of it sounded quite good, at least a bit different and something that still related to the Bat books, which would be a bit different and fun to read. This wasn't really related to Batman at all, but I don't mind it so much. I don't mind Jason Todd being his own character. In fact, I I embrace that because we're getting away from I can't believe you let the, the Joker kill me. I hate you. You're a bad dad, that sort of thing, because that does get very boring. The art in this, this reminds me a bit of Carlos Dander from the recent uh, Arkham City tie-in comic. I don't know if anyone else thinks that, but um, I, I quite liked it. It's, uh, like Dustin said, it's quite messy, but it kind of, it works. It's very line-heavy, but I do like it. Um, as for the over-sexualization of the characters and stuff, I... I think it was worse in Catwoman, but that was kind of a given, given the context of the book. This is, I was a bit more shocked when I saw it in this, but I don't mind it so much. It doesn't feel as aggressive in a way. I was a bit confused by most of it, to be honest, but by the references to the Teen Titans, because I was sure that in the uh, the new Teen Titans book, that's supposed to be the first formation of the Teen Titans as a group. So unless it's the Team Titans or something. So, But then the whole book is very confusing and to end on the tagline, to be explained. 
But um, I'm kind of glad that was there because I was reading this going, what the hell is going on? So I'm glad it wasn't just me being a bit thick. But I'm kind of interested to see where this goes, at least for the first arc, and then I'll be able to make up my mind properly. I, I'm not sure if it's just the way the story's been told so far or if it's just going to be confusing confusing throughout. But I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. Okay. This was mm, this was my least favorite of, of the week. And the reason for that is, okay, the book opens up with, I think, a rather amazing opening scene. I really enjoyed the fake out with the, with the minister slash priest slash whatever he was becoming Jason Todd or the Red Hood, rather. I, I love the breakout there. I like Starfire showing up and just, you know, blazing everyone to death. So the first, like, 10 pages or so, I was really on board with. It's around page 11 when the boys are sitting there talking about their backstories and then Mystery Shadow Woman shows up that I really start to lose the book. And also you have the bit with Starfire and Roy that really threw me off. Here, here's, here's my thing about the sexuality in this book is that it's, it's not as visually explicit as it is with Catwoman. But I didn't mind the visual explicitness of Catwoman. My problem here is we don't have a situation in Catwoman where Catwoman really likes Batman, she sees Batman, and she jumps his bones. All right, that's normal humanity, you know, in action right there. This is a female character who makes absolutely zero discrimination that we can tell so far in her sex partners. Not only that, but also doesn't remember who her previous ones were. So it's like the the epitome of the sex with no consequences concept that I find kind of troubling. And it's just she's she's a seven she's a she's a bimbo sex alien, and, and that's a 1970s science fiction stereotype that I really could have done without in my in my modern comics. It, it you know wasn't really that you know, great then, and it's not, it's not that great now. The, I, the fact that this entire second half was using names and references that we didn't even know, and it left on a cliffhanger to be explained, that, that was really clumsy storytelling, which was really surprising to me with Scott Lobdell, because I thought that he did a really good job with Superboy the week before in his storytelling there. This, this was not what I wanted. I also, this is kind of a tangent, but Okay, Jason Todd was killed by the Joker. The Joker was the Red Hood. So why, when Jason Todd came back, did he pick up the previous identity of his murderer for his for his new costume? I don't know. That that's bothered me ever since ever since this happened. But anyways, I wasn't going to buy this book. I ordered it in the first run because my daughter wanted to read it, and now we're going to have to have a talk. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I read it because I eventually decided to read everything from the New 52 for the articles I'm doing for the BatmanUniverse.net website and others. And so, you know, I'm going to keep reading it. Maybe it'll turn differently. Maybe there's more to Starfire than meets the eye. But as it is right now, I feel like we've given we've been given an accurate depiction of her character because we've seen inside her head as well. And it's not a character that I think has any use whatsoever. I'm going to give this a one and a half out of five. Good job. 
I'm glad you approved all that. <laughs> oh my gosh. You ruined my moaning slash banging the desk moment. Now I have to do it again. I'm sorry. Ooh. That that's what the book was about for me. You know, Catwoman as I thought that was as bad as it could get, certainly. But before I read that, I thought that this book was pretty awful, and I just ran through the streets yelling, save yourselves. The issue starts off okay. I definitely agree with uh, John there, though I don't really like the look of Roy. Just kind of some a drug-dealing rock star. I think I've heard it, him characterized, and I think that his voice is a little bit off. Uh, a jailbreak was certainly a different way to start off a book. Jason's voice, I thought, was spot on, and I've become a small fan of him way back in Countdown, because I was that one person that, uh, you know, collected all of those, but this book sort of ruins him for me. So, you know, this book is bringing the sexy back as well. I thought it was bad until I saw Catwoman, but let's not Let's leave Catwoman for Catwoman. The first time that Jason talks about Corey is the fact that she is, quote, with him, end quote. Biblically, that is. Then we have some major TNA. Of course we do. You know, Starfire is in the book. And then we have a kid filming it. But I do have to say a positive aspect of this kid filming it is the fact that it seems like this comic is almost tying it to Birds of Prey because I feel like the guy who is receiving the video... I think he's Mr. Keen, the same reporter who's tangling with the birds. Uh, I could be wrong, but it really looked like him. So I kind of like that that uh, interplay between the two issues, however subtle it is. Then we have Jason telling Roy that Starfire is basically a middle schooler with ADD who doesn't remember any of her partners and will have sex with basically anyone. And if you don't believe it, that's okay because she later had sex with Roy. I mean, gosh, why pay $2.99 to watch heroes talk about sex while lounging on a beach? Nothing happens in this issue either. And what does happen with Jason in Essence, I was absolutely confused about. Essence has ties to Jason's past. There may be soon some Jason Essence shippers out there. Who knows? I'll check on fanfiction.net right after this. But she has not existed before this, which always bothers me. I, I just have a problem with characters that make readers believe that they've appeared before, but they actually have not. I give this one out of five batterings. The other thing that I'd quite like to mention is um, Jason Todd definitely has a bat symbol on his chest, which I really don't think should be there considering the amount of times he shoots people in the head in the prison breakout. I'm pretty sure that Batman would have stripped that from him long ago. I'm sure Batman didn't make the costume for him, though. No, but I'm sure he's still got some control. I would say maybe Batman doesn't know, but Batman knows everything, so never mind. Except for who Catwoman is. Well, we don't know that. Never mind. mind. Well, except he says... She is. Except she knows that her apartment blew up, so I'm pretty sure you go, oh, this apartment belongs to Selena Kyle. Which I hadn't thought about when I was reading it, but yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty solid indicator that he knows who she is. I'm pretty sure he knows who the Flashpoint woman is, too. He's Batman. Just, he, knows. he just looks at her with his special contact lenses in. Like, oh, right Facial recognition. <laughs> that's what we need. We, we, that, someone someone needs to go to New York Comic Con and Scott Snyder will be there and say, can you have uh, Bruce look at the Flashpoint woman with his contact lenses so we can find out who that chick is? Ever since five years ago when he saw her in the stands as they flew over Cyborg's football game. Yeah. He saw her down there in the stands. He's been researching her ever since. All right, Red Hood... And the Outlaws number one gets out of five reviews, an average of one and a half out of five batterings. 
That is all our comic reviews. Let's throw it in Nick with Bad Books for Beginners. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Bat Books for Beginners. I'm your host, Nick. Now, we may be going through a bit of a transition in the DC comic world at the moment with the start of the DC New, but uh, that doesn't mean you want to forget about all those older stories. That's where I come in. Uh, maybe you've just got into Batman through the Don't Call It a Reboot reboot, um, or maybe you're just interested in revisiting older Batman stories. Maybe you're, you're tired of the DC New already. Um, either way, this is Bat Books for Beginners, and it, it's here to guide you through Batman's previous stories. Um, I've done plenty of episodes so far, and I'm just getting up to quite a milestone at the moment in Batman's history. But uh, So check back through the archives in the Batman universe for the Bat Books for Beginners older episodes, see what other books I've reviewed, what's on offer, and see what I've covered, and, and you'll get a good background on Batman's past. Whether you're a new fan or an old fan, Bat Books for Beginners is a good place for you to start. So as I mentioned, I'm now entering a milestone in Batman's history, and uh, that would be because I'm reviewing Nightfall, and in particular, Nightfall Part 1, known as the Broken Bat. Now, this was written by two writers, uh, Doug Monk, Monk, still not sure how to pronounce that name, and Chuck Dixon. Now, I've reviewed uh, both of these guys' stories in the past on BBFB, and they're two writers I definitely have a lot of faith in, so it's a good start there. And the art is, again, provided by a few guys I'm familiar with, Norm Brayfogle and Jim Aparo, who have both done some excellent work in the past. We've also got Graham Nolan, who worked on the last story I reviewed, Vengeance of Bane, a build-up to this Nightfall story. And there's Jim Ballant, who uh, worked on the Catwoman series from uh, 1993 to 1999. Very long run there of six years. Uh, he's a new artist to me, so we'll see what that's like. See how I what I think of his work. Now, um, the reason we have so many writers and artists this time is because Nightfall is a huge story encompassing several series... It's one of the first big uh, Batman crossovers, certainly, and it, it, it basically encompassed all of the series that were running at the time, and the story was slowly put through each book, chapter by chapter, and built up to a big climax. So this BBFB episode is probably going to be a bit longer than recent ones, just because I'm dealing with a pretty big story here, and it may well be that case as we run through Nightfall. Now, the story was published in 1993, and it's available in trade paperback form, or you can go back and get the individual issues. I mentioned what those issues were in the previous BBFB segment, so you can go back there if you're eager to get those back issues for your collection. So, we've had loads of stories in the build-up to this mammoth first chapter in Nightfall, um, one of the most well-known sagas for Batman, so it's finally time for Night to Fall. <laughs> what do you want? You don't want to go straight back into the restraints now, do you? The trouble with you is that you think I suffer from insanity. You're wrong. I enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> I ain't got time for this. Take a nap. It'll make the time pass quicker. Oh, that's a good one. The judge sentenced me to Arkham for 300 years. Good thing I didn't get life. Now, <laughs> life don't you? Look, look. What is it? Oh, it's over on the hillside. Over 
Okay, God. Speak up, will you? Now this sounds more like it. Incoming! <laughs> what a mess! <laughs> I spend all day tidying up my cell, and some inconsiderate mischief maker fires a tank round into it. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure they think twice before doing it again. I'm gonna organize a mass protest right here in the bin, and we're gonna take it to the highest authority in Gotham City! In person! <laughs> Master Bruce. Uh, Alfred, what is it? Sir, the signal. I would have ignored it, but I've just seen it on the news. Somebody blew a hole in Arkham Asylum this morning. What? Every misfit you've hunted down and had put away in that hellhole is armed and trying to escape. So, firstly, Bane and his trio of friends from Santa Prisca steal a massive amount of weaponry as they are preparing for an all-out war. Bane concocts an attack on Arkham Asylum and stages a giant breakout of Arkham. He releases many of the most violent offenders and gives them the weaponry he stole earlier. Those criminals go on a rampage within the asylum and escape into the city. Following the massive Arkham breakout, the Mad Hatter is the first to make a move. He sends Film Freak out to find out who sprung them from confinement. He then invites Batman to a little tea party that he's having. The thugs at the tea party are easily defeated and the Hatter is captured, but Film Freak is killed by Bane. Batman is already beginning to show his fatigue, but continues on regardless. Batman then has to deal with the ventriloquist and Amygdala, who form an unlikely partnership. This is followed by Mr. Zaz, who takes several girls hostage at a boarding school. Batman manages to infiltrate the school and rescue them, but his low energy levels are really beginning to show as Bane simply continues to watch from a distance. Robin manages to track one of Bane's henchmen, called Bird, back to Bane's location. He follows the hulking menace before being ambushed and captured by Bane. Bane begins talking to Robin in the sewers when suddenly Killer Croc emerges and attacks Bane. All three of them fall into the sewers and are pulled further into the depths of Gotham's underground, but Robin does manage to save himself. The Joker decides to team up with Cornelius Sturk and plans to kidnap Commissioner Gordon, but Sturk quickly gets out of control and tries to kill Gordon before Batman intervenes and saves him. Sturk is captured, but the Joker manages to escape and then teams with the Scarecrow, uh, who suggests that they need to look higher and decide to go after the Mayor of Gotham. Firefly then arrives and starts torching areas of Gotham. Batman is busy and leaves it to Robin to try and find the Firefly. Tim does some research and manages to predict the villain's next move, relaying the info to Batman. Batman's unable to catch Firefly though after a lengthy fight and he realises his true weakness at that moment. Jean-Paul Valley, who has been training with Bruce recently, decides to try and help out on the streets, as does Huntress, who also turns up at one point to help too. Bruce reluctantly attends a charity ball, which is invaded by Poison Ivy, who manages to brainwash the guests thanks to plant spores. Bruce quickly changes into the Batman costume again, and overpowers the manipulating villainess. The Riddler is sick of not getting the attention that his riddles deserve with all the chaos going on around Gotham, so he decides to go on a popular TV chat show with a bomb strapped to his chest. Knowing Batman is busy, Robin rushes to the studio and manages to foil the Riddler's plot. 
Batman then decides he needs to go and rescue the mayor, who, as I mentioned earlier, is being held by Scarecrow and Joker. Once he finds the two of them, Batman is gassed by Scarecrow and has visions of Jason Todd's death, clearly his biggest fear at the time. He overcomes the fear and beats Scarecrow. He then turns on the Joker and beats him severely, screaming the words Jason Todd as he does so, almost getting a small bit of revenge there on the Joker. After a lot of effort, Batman saves the man and returns him to the police. Just when he thinks he'll get a break, he's struck by a trog, bird and zombie, Bane's three henchmen. And with his final remaining energy, Batman manages to defeat the three of them, but still there are no answers of Bane's whereabouts. Bruce decides to return home, eager for some rest, but Alfred is not there to greet him. Very unusual. Bruce walks up through the cave to Wayne Manor to find Alfred on the floor unconscious. Bane has arrived. Bane begins pummeling into Bruce, relentlessly attacking him, with Bruce offering no defence or response to the attacks. After a massive brawl in the Batcave, Bane decides to end this. But rather than kill the Bat, he will simply break him. He takes Bruce, lifts him above his head, and smashes his spine onto Bane's knee, breaking Batman's back. And the chapter closes there. Joker, ventriloquist and Scarface, Scarecrow, Riddler. Loose in the night, hunting free in the dark. Most of the worst and more heavily armed, permanently dangerous. Who broke them out of our So what did I think of Batman Nightfall, the first chapter? Well, firstly, um, it had a great start. Um, I loved all of Batman's work, you know, his life's work almost, being undone, but in one move by Bane when he destroyed the asylum and let out all the villains. And, and the anguish that Batman went through in that early phase of the book, I thought, was really powerful and um, really set up a fantastic story. Yes, there are a lot of intense moments in this book, but um, there were some funny moments too, and from people like, uh, from some of the lesser-known rogue villains, like Maxi Zeus, for instance. And we got to see the real range of Batman's villains, from the Joker to the Ventriloquist to Film Freak to Bane to Scarecrow. And seeing all the villains in such a small space of time really showed you the range of the, of the characters and um, reinforced my love for those villains. I noticed that uh, there were a lot of TV shows, radio shows, ch sort of chat shows used to update the situation in Gotham because it's quite difficult to express how the city is coping and like the time frame we're dealing with here. And it's a technique I first noticed in the book Watchmen and I think it was um, adopted and I think it worked pretty well here. Not to such great effect, but I did a pretty good job of keeping us updated on how the, the world is dealing with this this massive uh, outbreak. I like the idea that to reach Bane, Batman had to fight through this massive storm that Bane created around him. It was challenging, it was tough, and, and it was a really... It was a unique challenge. I've not seen Batman have to deal with something like this before, and that was intriguing. Um, one negative might be that uh, there was a new character to me called Cornelius Sturk, who um, really didn't work for me, seemed very odd, some sort of zombified creature and he focuses on fear to me it was a bit of a scarecrow ripoff i think he was a character created in the 90s kind of left in the 90s and um didn't really do anything for me at all I, but then again i thought there was a really interesting combination when the scarecrow and the joker teamed up um 
and I loved the moment where fear gas was used on Joker and it didn't really have any effect. I thought that was very really interesting. I think you could see Batman's weaknesses. I thought that was shown well in the writing. For instance, Tim tells Batman that they mustn't react to everything all the time. Um, they need to try and be proactive. And so he goes to investigate Firefly and manages to predict his next move. To me, this kind of upstaged Batman and proved tr Tim's true worth and, and showed that Tim knows where to focus attention when it's needed um another negative some of the police outfits were absolutely ridiculous particular commissioner gordon's wife who uh, was wearing some sort of pink and blue checkered jacket um but i mean this is similar to 90s comic book fashion we also have bullock's bright yellow hat um Really off-putting, I have to say, and doesn't hold up well over time. In, in a more general view, I thought this was a story where Batman's relentless commitment to fighting crime becomes his downfall here. He does not stop, and that is commendable, but Bane is aware of that and gave him such a challenge and he knew it was too much. It's mentioned that Batman doesn't know when to surrender in the story, but he also doesn't know when to take a break and trust others like Tim... Nightwing, Huntress, to fight for him, and when to, to take a step back when he knows he's done too much. And um, this is a big flaw in Bruce Wayne, and I think Bane recognised that and exploited it well, and um, really shows a side to Bruce Wayne's character that um, is, is, is a weakness. But once again, Batman is reminded of the loss of Jason Todd when Scarecrow squirts some fear gas at him. Um, that seems to be becoming a, quite common now in massive stories involving Bruce. Uh, we also got the introduction of Dr. Kinsolving, who didn't really do a lot in this story apart from just appear once or twice. But she will become more prominent as we progress through the stories. So do not worry about that. Um, Bane figured out Batman's identity pretty quickly. Upon seeing Bruce Wayne, it seems like he's figured it out. It's great to see a villain decipher that identity um, because it never, it just doesn't happen. And um, it was great to see that happen. How that is going to be taken into the future, I'm not sure. I mean, why doesn't Bane just tell everyone who Batman really is? I don't know. I hope that does get addressed. But, you know, when I look at the writing and the art, I thought Bruce's weakness was portrayed well through both mediums. Um, and I liked it. Uh, as an event, it's pretty entertaining so far. It feels very epic. But um, some, some of the execution wasn't brilliant. I mean, the individual comic book stories as you go through it, in which Batman tracks down particular villains, some are not memorable at all. We had the Mad Hatter... There's one with Amygdala and Ventriloquist. Um, and they're not great individual stories. But the overall story, involving Bane in particular, is good. It's There are a few individual issues, I would say, or a bit of a waste of time, and maybe stretch the story out a bit. And the artwork, unfortunately, is quite plain. Um, the covers by Kelly Jones look pretty good. But apart from a few memorable panels and the depiction of Bane which I did like, I felt the art was quite simplistic. Maybe there was a massive job to do here and not enough time. I don't know, but did feel simple, which was a shame for something this well written and a little bit of a surprise. But, uh, you know, the, the final moments of the story were excellent. Bruce really looked afraid, very unlike him, and that final fight with Bane in the Batcave is one that I think I will always remember. It's one of the big fights of Batman's history, and we've come to that moment where his back has been broken. But all in all, 
pretty good collection of stories, I have to say. Um, apart from being slightly drawn out and lacking some individual strength in certain areas, overall, it's a very good story and a good start to the Nightfall saga. I'll be giving The Broken Bat four out of five Batarangs. Don't remember getting to the car. Recall the ride home, only it snatches. Cave, home. Can't wear this costume in the house, promised Alfred. But where is Alfred? Oh, concentrate. Nearly at the Batcave access door. The clock hands said at the precise hour my parents were murdered. And it's unlocked. Strange. Not like Alfred, too. Alfred? I left him alive, Mr. Bruce Wayne. It is not your underlings I want, Batman. Bane! In Wayne Manor, it is you! And you will scream my name! You know who I am. My senses are quickened in ways which give me insights denied to other men. Insights which ensure my survival. For no disguise can hide my enemies from me. This Bruce Wayne is nothing but a mask which no longer serves your purposes, Batman. What has all this been about? Freeing the inmates from Arkham. Watching me wear myself down trying to recapture them. I was a child in a jail filled with the dregs of the earth. But the vision sustained me that I would survive those days of terror, those nights of fitful dark dreams, when dark-winged creatures would torment me. And that one day, I would rule a great city the way I ruled that jail, by defeating the dark-winged creature that haunted my tortured nights. You would kill just I would kill for anything. I would kill to silence a grating voice, to darken the light in eyes that dared look at me. Yours is a man. I cannot allow to run free. You must be brought down, whatever the cost. You will pay dearly. Oh, rib gone. Master Bruce. Alfred, save yourself. Run. Now, if you're wondering where I'm getting these clips that you're hearing from, then um, I recommend you check out the BBC audio drama of the Nightfall Saga. Uh, starring Michael Goff, who played Alfred in the Tim Burton movies. It's a very good production. It's available on CD, or I'm sure you can download it on the internet, and uh, does a great job of covering such a large and complex story. Very well acted, and um, you can fly through it very quickly. I'd highly recommend it. So if you are interested in Nightfall, maybe you don't want to read the books, um, the audio drama is an excellent uh, alternative to that. So... Next time, what will happen next to Bruce? Is Batman gone forever? Well, don't count on it, because the next chapter is Nightfall Part 2, Who Rules the Night? And in the immediate aftermath of uh, Bane's destruction of Bruce Wayne, what will happen next? Has Bane won? Is it all over? Um, We will find out next time. So if you uh, would like to join me for the next BBFB, all you need to do is pick up Nightfall Part 2, Who Rules the Night? It's available as a trade paperback, or you can get the individual issues uh, Detective Comics 664 through to 666, Showcase 93, 7 and 8, Shadow of the Bat 16 to 18, and Batman issues 498 through to 500. Or, as I said, simply pick up the trade paperback. 
So I hope you're enjoying the start of Nightfall. Sorry for the lengthy BBFB. I hope it hasn't taken too much time out of the comic cast. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. Farewell. Seismic anomaly detected in that case. This is over. You are nothing. Robin. Beg for mercy. Scream my name. Go. Go to hell. You want death? I deny it to you. I will raise you up. And I will bring Right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are picking up the next issue for the next podcast. Now, we bring you a brand new segment of the podcast where we will be discussing, not really discussing, but kind of suggesting an, another issue that's that's coming out from DC Comics, part of the DC Universe, New 52, that you should be checking out. Specifically for this episode, because we're starting it this, this time, because... At this point, there's three weeks worth of books out. We're picking one issue from the last three weeks of, of the New 52 to suggest to you to pick up that's outside the the range of the Batman universe. The whole point of the New 52 is to get new readers to read different books. I've taken that to heart and picked up a number of different new series and given them a chance and I've been reading a number of different things that I normally wouldn't read. Although I don't know how long that'll last, but some of, some of these series that I've been reading have actually gotten me interested enough to make sure that I will be making time in the future. So each one of us are going to go through, we're going to name off one series, some of the highlights of it, and why you should be picking it up. So we're going to start off with Donovan, and we'll move through everybody, and we're all going to give you a different book to kind of check out. And we will be calling this segment DCU Spotlight, just like we do on the website. For this first edition of DCU Spotlight, I will be recommending Action Comics. Written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by Rags Morales, this is the uh, su- the first Superman title that came out for the New 52 era, and it features none other than the Man of Steel himself, Superman. And if you've never read a Superman comic book, then this book is made for you. This issue showcases like what Superman is all about, helping the little guy. But he's a little rougher than you would expect. He's not full-on Batman, but he's taking it to high corporate criminals. He's he's making threats. He's showing how powerful he is. But at the same time, he's very, very confident about it. He's like, sort of, he's he's almost sort of like showing off the fact that he can take he can take down the whole city if he if he really wanted to. But he's on the side of the just, and it's really, really, really fun, positive, original storytelling. It does harken back to an old age of Superman, but if you don't know about that old age of Superman, you have no reason to look into that. Well, you do because it's good stuff, but also you don't need to. That's not required because this is this feels fresh. We see Lois Lane, we see Lex Luthor, and yeah, hop onto Action Comics to see how Superman's turning out because it's you will not regret it. Well, I'm sure you've already heard lots about Animal Man and Swamp Thing, so I'm going to be recommending another dark title, which is Resurrection Man, because. I recently found out that I'm very much into some of the the darker titles and the more Vertigo-inspired DC titles. And I picked up number one just because I was interested in the premise of it, and I really enjoyed it. It's all about Mitch Shelley, who every time he dies, comes back with a new power. 
and it's a really interesting idea and so far it's gone a bit weird because he's come back and people are hunting for his soul the one thing i would like to say about it is i think it'd be really funny if he died and then came back with the power of invincibility because then he'd be screwed um, yeah, there, I, I've been reading everything, and there have been several that I've really enjoyed. All the super books have been really good. Several books I did not expect to enjoy more than Middlin have been standout hits for me. And the top of those, it has been Animal Man, which is by writer Jeff Lemire and artists Travel Foreman and Dan Green. I have never read Animal Man before, except whenever it's crossed over with other stuff I'm reading. And so this was kind of a new entry point for me. It starts out feeling like, you know, just any other superhero book of a guy who's sort of out of practice, but it quickly takes a turn for the horror. And there's some really cool visuals and some really kind of creepy storytelling in it that uh, I, I rather dug. So yeah, if you if you're if you're a fan of darker side of storytelling, definitely want to pick out Animal Man. And there are hints that it's going to cross over with Swamp Thing in the future, which is also rather good. So I would recommend both those. As the Token Girl, I'm going to totally recommend the Token Girl book here. Supergirl, number one, Michael Green and Mike Johnson are the writers, and Mahmoud uh, Azra, the penciler, and then Dan Green with Azra as inkers. But, man, I think this, probably out of all the ones that we've reviewed, all the ones that, that have come out so far, is the epitome of a number one. It's it's new. It's like Tabula Rasa, and you get quickly invested in Supergirl. And I was going to pick this up on a whim, but I was really concerned because the taglines just made it seem like, oh wow, she's going to be an angsty teen. But that's far like far cry from what actually comes out. And it's just she comes down and she wonders, where am I? Oh, this must be a dream. And then all these things start happening to her, and she's just completely overwhelmed with robots and the sun and these new powers. And then of course it ends with Kal-El coming down but it was just great and she doesn't really talk too much it's all mostly inner monologue and her sorting through things but I just like really grew attached to this character from issue one and all the people that I talked to loved it so this is definitely the one to pick up all right and finally I've, I've read pretty much everything that's come out as well there's only a couple of issues that I have still yet to read um, not that this is the very best, but this would be one different than some of the other ones that have been mentioned would be Men of War number one. A lot of people may have listened to some of the past podcasts and know that I actually was in the military. Actually, when we first started the Batman universe, I was actually still in the military. And Men of War is a nice, interesting twist on kind of a different take on characters that are still taking place in the DC universe is still happening, but at the same time are generally having their own situations happen, but are affected by what's happening in the DC universe. It's written by Ivan Brandon with art by Tom Derenick, and it follows Joe Rock. And Joe Rock is a character that's been around for a while, but this is not the Joe Rock that you have, you may have heard about in the past. This is a, this is actually a descendant of the previous Joe Rock that we've, we've read about in the past. I'd never really read any Joe Rock issues prior to the new DC. Kind of just read this on a whim, thinking, uh, maybe, maybe it'll be good. And 
I've heard some complaints about how, how technical it gets with the weapons and things, but I understood everything that there was to understand about the weapons. I knew exactly what they were talking about. I knew exactly everything that was going on. And I can tell that the writer either has some kind of military experience in the past or has an extensive knowledge of the things that happen within the military because there's a lot of things that actually happen in the book that I could immediately say yes, that would happen in real life. This was a great read and if you are just a fan of war movies and things like that, this is a definitely a, a modern take on the, the whole war element that has been in the DCU, but specifically at not really a, a spoiler, but at the end of the issue, there's a distinct, distinct person that's appeared in the book that makes you believe that this is actually taking place in the DC Universe. It isn't just telling this random story off to the side that has nothing to do with the DC Universe, which is something I really appreciate. So, Men of War, number one. So, that is our suggestions. We're going to make sure we do this every time, and obviously on the next episode, we will be sure to specifically reference something of the last two weeks for the two weeks that we're actually... So with that, let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. So on the next podcast, we'll be covering Batman the Dark Knight number one, Batwing number two, Detective Comics number two, The Huntress number one, and Penguin Pain and Prejudice number one as well. So we'll be covering a total of five issues on the next podcast. We may actually get to a discussion. Again, no promises due to the fact that you know, we're, we're doing a, we're trying to give you the best reviews possible, and sometimes the discussions don't always work out with that. So, with that, that's everything for this episode. Make sure you are checking out everything on the website for all the news related to the comics, as well as the movies, TV, merchandise, video games. October is a big month for pretty much a lot of different things. Batman Year One's coming out, Batman Arkham City's coming out. A lot of things happening within the Batman universe, so make sure you're checking out the website. Head over to the forums and join the forums to discuss all the things related to the comics. We, we've started threads for every single comic that's being released related to the Batman universe and some of the DCU titles that also relate to Batman as well. Check out that. Leave your comments there. If you're not a member on the forums, be sure to register and then shoot us an email saying that you registered so we can be sure to activate your account. Please leave us any reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews are always nicer than negative reviews. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Check out YouTube for all the latest videos. We'll be posting a number of new commercials very shortly, so make sure you're checking that out. Also, on Twitter and Facebook, tons of new news every single day that we're making sure we post and get to the fans. So, that's everything for this episode. If you have anything else, you can always email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. So this is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jay. I am John Wilson. At Hike Stella Est. I don't even know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't this is Stella, yeah. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Wear protection.
Next thing we've got is uh, also on September 9th, Judd Winnick talked with uh, IGN about Catwoman. Ugh. Don't do that. Sorry. Guess what? It's yours. Oh, no. <laughs> really? Is Flame Bird, right? Yeah, that yes. was her name, but now it's been burned. Okay, but I just want to make sure I wasn't saying that wrong because it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> This might not be the best time to reveal your rapping skills. I'm, I'm just kidding. I figured it'd be Loved it. You didn't know that, did you, Justin? No, I did know that. I knew all about it. I was the one who posted this, the, the video for her. Or not uh, video, the, her album. Oh, yeah. Drops, me making rain. Okay. <laughs> I think it's really nice to see uh, Dick back in this role. So, yeah. so are you, like, across the room? <laughs> you, you suddenly your microphone sounds like you no longer have the same microphone. Sorry. The there we go. Better? Okay, okay. Uh, no, I'm back in the bathroom. Oh, okay. that'd be bad. But good acoustics, right? Okay, so... He's giving a review from the bathroom. I thought Nightwing was great. <laughs> bathroom to Oracle. Oh my gosh. Anyways. When you said that, I thought you were going to say, why read about heroes talking about sex on the beach when you can watch them have it on the internet for free. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say. Oh, gosh. Watched on the I internet. was really trying to figure out where that was going to. Let's get the gripping begin. <laughs> wait, 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 what? <laughs> Sorry. Griping? Oh, man. It's griping? It's griping. It's griping. There's only one piece of it. <laughs> Catwoman number one, and your gripping will begin. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Catwoman's gripping it. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Don mute. You're crying. 